They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Thank you. 
welcome to the homunculus book club <laughs> you might know it as the occult book club and man i wasn't expecting this one this one is gonna have it's gonna have cosmic snail trails we're gonna live life in reverse we're gonna learn the secrets to uh basically immortality hold we're on, gonna dude, talk dude, about dude, reincarnation dude, dude, hold on hold did on. i mention the cosmic snail trail thomas where where is your foreplay brother you gotta treat the audience like a, there, there's a lady. not enough time man there's not enough time for this it's i know the first three chapters and i got like 50 pages of notes listen welcome to another episode of the occult book club i'm one of your hosts of whatever this thing is juan from the one on one podcast follow me tjojp.com patreon.com slash one one podcast all that good stuff and thomas introduce yourself to the people bro don't ever do you that you guys again. know me as paranoid american or thomas you can find me at paranoidamerican.com at paranoid american on instagram and i'm streaming live right now on the youtube so if you're not already following me on youtube follow me now so i can get my first thousand and start selling cool crystals and like uh <laughs> all you know like all sorts of cool shit so yeah, I am. We're on a lot of different platforms. We're trying to go live on some other ones, but I'm like, they're pinging that they're not going live. So I'm going to just remove them. But yeah, welcome everybody. This is going to be, yeah, we're doing the, I should have put that in the description. We're only doing the first three chapters. Cause how many pages is this book? This would be absurd to cover in one sitting. I mean, this would be like a the version hour. we're looking at is around 700 pages or so, and I think the first three constituted up until page like 147 or something. So the first 150 pages, we got a review plus the intro and the forward and some backstory. Well, I missed the intro, so you're going to have to back me up on that one, brother, because I, I caught that after the fact, and I don't even have my notes open. Making so. mistakes already, man. Rookie, dude, rookie. Well, well, I'll let you know one thing in the in the intro. And so this book is a Rosicrucian book. It's probably the first one that I've read in any sort of detail. Um, I'm familiar with who the Rosicrucians are, the Rosy Cross, some of the concepts. It's kind of like a Christian mysticism uh, ordeal. But this one gave me the first big insight. And I also noticed so much influence that this must have had on Manly Palmer Hall. Because this book, the original version came out in 1909. The one that we read was 1929. So the 20 year difference, a lot of that went into the intro. So yeah, I'll catch you up on the intro, but I want to ask, did you see any of the Manly P Hall uh, influence throughout this thing? Absolutely. And I didn't even read the table of contents and when, and this book, so Flying I blind, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I did the, the research that we were going to agree on, right? The first three chapters and it, it kind of, it triggers the, 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 the religious crowd because in this book, they talk about how Christ, or I'm going to put it up right out front, that Christ is three separate beings, right? They don't believe in in that Christ resurrected in his body, his actual biological There's body. More than three. There's like a whole bunch of rules well, here. I think I've made a couple notes that about halfway through chapter two, I felt like I was doing algebra homework again from sort of like middle school or high school. So I was getting a lot of those vibes where I, I felt like there was going to be a cop quiz at any point. Like you were going to turn the page and we're going to be like, okay, you're in the third region, but you go back, you know, one dimension and then up two levels. Where are you? Every occult scientist knows this, Thomas, right? It's like, it's, it's a matter of mat that That's the thing about different beliefs, bro. Like it's okay if you want to talk about your beliefs, but 
when you're so matter of fact that that is the truth, that's when I get kind of like, okay, I was like, no, that's, this is the way that it is. And it's always funny that whenever we, we're not putting the respect that these topics need, Thomas, I don't think that we're, we're really putting the respect down. I know some people are going to be talking about that. But well, this one, I've got some refutations, too, because, again, this is 100 years ago. So a lot has happened. A lot more research has come out in 100 years. And there's some bold matter of fact claims that come out in this book that I don't know if they're just outright wrong or if just there was a different amount of perspective that was needed. But the way some things are phrased, it almost feels like like you get to debunk some stuff halfway through, which sounds silly about debunking you know, Christian mysticism, but there's a, a few things at least we'll get into. We'll, we'll debate a little bit, maybe. Yeah, it's got some Gnostic undertones, obviously, right? And then, yes, absolutely, Max Heindel did inspire Daddy Manly P. Hall, and I just did an episode with William Ramsey on his podcast, and we talked about Manly P. Hall for a little bit. So I wanted to start off with the introduction of who Max was, right? So we're doing, we're covering for those that haven't caught on the road you've of, got the homework on this where I don't. I don't know a whole lot about Max Heindel, so go for it. The Rosicrucian Cosmo Conception by Max Heindel. Some people would consider this his magnum opus, but who was he? Max Heindel wasn't his first name. His first name was the first time that he got it was Carl Louis von Grasshoff. And he was a Danish American Christian occultist, astrologer, and mystic. So that's kind of weird, right? Christian occultist. Mm. That's kind of like a paradox there. So he was born in Denmark into the noble family von Grasshoff. And the thing was, he was born into a noble family. And then his father, Francis, married a, Dan a Danish woman of noble birth. But then the, when his father took off, his father died when he was six they grew up poor. So I didn't understand that part. Like he married, a, was it noble birth? Like was she royalty or I don't know anything about the Grasshoff family, but apparently that's who he grew up uh, as in that family. And then in 1903, he moved to Los Angeles and this is the right. The early 1900s was this time we had Blavatsky. We had Crowley. We had Hall. We had, I always bring up Nietzsche, but he went insane and died in 1888 but this revive this this spiritualist movement as well. You had that the occultism was going rampant, and it seems like Los Angeles, because Parsons was around Los Angeles, right? California, this place that's like attracting people, right? All these all the greatest hits were going and migrating there. So, after attending a lecture by none other than C. W. Ledbetter, right? And a lot of this stuff is a lot of very a lot of theosophists type of stuff, right? The theosophical society, which I'll be very heavy West coast, by the way, a lot of that, like there was some Christian mysticism on the East coast, but for some reason, the West coast got a pass. There was a crucianism and through a whole bunch of other mm. golden, you know, order hermetic dawn or golden dawn. And they got to do kind of like that hanky panky occult stuff that on the other coast almost would have gotten you excommunicated from your towns. So yeah, that's, it's interesting that like the, that Los Angeles West Coast crowd got such a head start on occultism. You know, that's an interesting point that you bring up, Thomas. I never thought well, about. If that. you look at the the very last uh, like witch hunts, there was a warlock that was actually brought to court and he got off. But I think that was in the 19th century, the very early 19th century. But a lot of that was all on the East Coast. 
Um, and on the West Coast, for some reason, if you were affluent and if you had money and you came from a noble family, like you were mentioning, you were allowed to read grimoires and talk about magic and, and almost say like blasphemous things. But if you were poor, you couldn't because now all of a sudden that's evil and you're, you know, you're bringing up incantations and summoning devils. But if you're rich and you've got the family, then you're just, you know, into esoteric goodiness. And there's a distinction to be made as well. A lot of the times, at least in the 16th and 17th century, when these grimoires were coming out, a lot of them were natural magic. And natural magic was okay because it was things that God put in nature and you were just mixing them, right? A plus B equals C. So it was okay. As long as you weren't doing some sort of theurgical thing where and theurgy is using outside influences to influence your your reality so calling upon other spirits in the astral planes or whatever you want to call it that's demonic now if you're just mixing right everybody so knows you're calling wrote this rosicrucian as a book uh demonic in a way then well right? a lot of people don't know thomas that i actually grew up pentecostal christian i haven't really said that on the podcast <laughs> very much but a lot of people, yeah. When, start talking in tongues in the middle of this. So when I was when I was raised Pentecostal Christian, a lot of people don't know that. I anything that was outside of Christianity is, and, and again, if you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're going to hell. It's all demonic. And in this book, it talks about how Jesus, right? They don't they don't see Jesus as the as God, and that was what, that's one of the more confusing aspects of Christianity because. God is the Holy Trinity. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I remember as a kid going like, wait a minute, how is he? So he's, no, no, but there's three separate entities. Like, what? No, no, so it's God, okay, and then Jesus. Yeah, he's the Son, so he's, wait, he's He didn't a, carry the one. That's yeah, he, always the He's his problem. own dad? How is that going on? And then it was like, oh, yeah, but then he's like this metaphysical thing, too. It's like, as a kid, bro, it just blew my mind. So... And well, all answers are going to be revealed today. Yeah, so all answers. Sign up for the Patreon. I made a hundred, uh, $666 tier. I will give you the recipe for the Philosopher's Stone, so sign up on there. <laughs> and so he became the vice president of the Theosophical Society in 1904 and 1905. Mm -hmm. He also became a vegetarian and began the study of astrology because... He felt it gave him the key of unlocking the mysteries of man's inner nature. He met his future wife, Augusta Foss, around this time. And around this time, overworking, overexerting himself led him to have severe heart trouble in 1905. And for months, he lay at the point of death. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because he said that during his time of his illness... He spent most of it outside of his body. So conscious, he's, and he says here, consciously working and seeking for truth as he might find it on the invisible plane. So in 1906 to 1907, he was doing a, a lecture tour, going around sharing his occult knowledge. And after a course of, not, of, after a course of lectures, again, he was forced to spend time in the hospital with of, uh, he had heart valve problems. And so he goes on 1907. He goes in Minnesota, traveled to Berlin, Germany with his friend. And for months, uh, he was trying to get him to hear a lecture series by Rudolf Steiner. Now, I didn't really get into it, but there are, I've never, I'll be 100%, I've never read Rudolf Steiner's work. 
I've stumbled across it. I don't know if you have. Have you, Thomas, ever read his stuff? Uh, I'm still very American-centric. I'm just now starting to branch out. But, I mean, this guy was also American, so mm-hmm. I haven't branched out too much yet. Okay. Okay, well, maybe we should cover Rudolf Steiner because he was an inspiration. There's actually papers dedicated to the different arguments of Steiner and Heindel. So, during his short stay in Germany, he developed a sincere admiration of Steiner, to which he, quote, esteemed teacher and valued friend, he dedicated his magnum opus. He sat on several lectures and had one or, or two interviews with Steiner. So, and then, <laughs> uh, anthro, so, anthropophacy, sophacy, whatever. Anyways, it's the idea of animals and, let's see here, spiritualist movement. And it's the idea that... I don't know what that is. I thought I had it right. But anyways, it has something to do with animals or something where they can have spiritual experiences, but that's a whole other podcast. And while he was, but at the time he understood that his teacher could not help him advance along the path of spiritual enlightenment. Heindel reported that with his mind already made up to return. So going back to the U.S., feeling that he had given up his work in America in vain to take this trip, he was visited by the vital body of a spiritual being who identified himself as an elder brother of the Rosicrucian order, an order in the inner worlds formed in the year 1313 and having no direct connection to physical organizations would call themselves by this name. Heindel claimed that the elder brother gave him information, which was concise and logical and beyond anything he was capable of writing. Hey, that sounds exactly like the story of there's no real Cartesian and the old man from the voyage to Cartesius, right? The guy that finds his mentor that leads him around Europe and teaches him how to be visited by astral bodies to give him knowledge. Look, I don't know how to say the word, but that's how you say anthroposophy, right? How do you say that? Anthro... Anthroposophy? You can't even say. See, if Thomas can't say it, beats (laughs) me, bro, okay? So... Yeah, that stuff. And I think it has to do with animals or something or other, but whatever. Anthroposophy? I don't know. Uh, who knows? So this is where it starts to cook cooking with gas, right? He's visited how you said, you said it, not me, visited by some spiritual being. This goes along with a lot of alchemical beliefs that when the student is ready for the magnum opus, the teacher will show up, right? There is entities in the bowels of reality. And every now and again, they'll stick their they'll, they'll stick they'll stick their head out of the cheeks of reality and go, "Hey, Thomas, are you ready for are you ready for that magnum opus, brother?" I've seen Ace Ventura. I've, <laughs> I've seen this before. Yeah. So the, yeah, they were referencing that, bro. You know, spread the cheeks of reality. And hey, what's going on, dude? You're good to go. Have at it. So again, beyond anything he was capable of writing, later he found out that during a previous visit of the elder brother, he was put to attest to determine his worthiness to be a messenger of the Western wisdom teachings. He recounts that only then he was given instructions how to reach the etheric temple of the Rose Cross near the German Bohemian border and how this temple Uh-oh. was in direct communication with the Bohemian, huh? with and under the personal instructions of the elder brothers of the Rose Cross. The Rosicrucian order is described as being composed of 12 elder brothers gathered around a 13th who is the invisible head. These great adepts belonging to human evolution, but having already advanced far beyond the cycle of rebirth, are reported as being among those exalted beings who guide mankind's evolution. Further, some help 
Further, some help him manifest without necessarily being under any. That, that's one of my favorite parts that we get into. That that there's these entities that are helping humankind, but it's it might be us, and then when we die, we spend two or three centuries out in the sky, and we use that to, to literally terraform the Earth and change the Earth and cause earthquakes and volcano. We'll have to get into that though. That comes in a little bit. Well, that that's that. Well, sp- speaking of this time. Well, not kind of this time, but L. Ron Hubbard was also on some stuff like that, right? Where they would mm-hmm. advance in these orders and go on. And every time I think that I'm a degenerate, this chat is even more degenerate than I could ever be, right? You have to... <laughs> they never fail to disappoint, but we have some degenerates in this chat. We are we are yeah. touching the cotton of the occult on this show. Yeah, but where's your respect, everybody? Where what, what is everybody on? You know, show some respect on these serious topics, Thomas. So this is where he's at, pretty much. And a lot of people don't like that idea. I've noticed in the in the in this conspiracy realm, because it's I guess it's too, what idea specifically the idea that there are entities controlling our reality. I forgot who I was having a conversation with where they were like, eh, that kind of really I'm, I like that idea. It makes my nipples hard. I think that it's it's again, but I don't know if it was a lot of people don't know. I'm Pentecostal it's the Christian, ultimate so. Illuminati, right? Like it's it's hard for me to believe that there's a bunch of flawed humans that have some kind of superpower, super knowledge where they're just without flaw. But if you told me that there's some kind of demiurge or like a collection of them, and that's the Illuminati, I feel like that at least has more logic behind it. I'm not going to say it makes any more sense or I believe it anymore, but it, it makes way, it has more logic compared to just like a group of people in a shadowy room somewhere. Listen, Thomas, you can't blame other worldly entities for you being a piece of shit. Okay. There are there. You will have to come to terms with yourself well, and no, admit this... your wrongs. This book argues that they're that it's up to the true occultist to find the good <laughs> in all evil, and that if you can if you're truly like an advanced being, then you can inject so much good into evil that you turn it good again. But that if you're not an advanced being, that just the smallest amount of evil can take your good and overwhelm it, and you just kind of go with the flow. So yikes! I don't know that there's a lot of interesting concepts on here that, that feels su- way outside of Christianity. I'm such a Capricorn. No, you're just a piece of shit, right? Like what, whatever sign that that's an asshole, right? So I I believe that there are things. That's why I named my journal, which you can find on the tjojp.com or kofi.com/slash the one more podcast. And on paranoidamerican.com. Occultist Monday, Hidden World. I 100% believe that there are things. Now, are they us? That's an interesting concept, which we'll get into because we're going to go down this whole rabbit hole. But the magnum opus, Heidel returned to America in the summer of 1908, where he had once started to formulate the Rosicrucian teachings, the Western wisdom teachings, which he had received from the Elder Brothers. And he published it as a book entitled The Rosicrucian Cosmo Conception in 1909. Now, early 20th century, we also have H.P. Lovecraft. We have, during this time, there were contemporaries. We had Crowley who was also in touch with Tatulu or Cthulhu or Cthulhu, these entities. But again, why was it early 20th century? And I mean, I'm sure that there are other connections, but like the, the some of the greatest occult, and I'm not going to call them greatest, but most influential occultists 
were kind of in that realm. But Crowley also had theosophical influences. So it's like this. I got this... an answer to that. I know it's a rhetorical question, but the answer is that if you're an occultist, right, and you hear all of a sudden people are making a fuss, like, oh, Crowley's out here talking to demons and aliens and, and like, you know, summoning things and talking through them. It's almost like you got to raise your game because then you got to wonder why why am I not talking to demons and aliens? And then other people going to start asking, well, hey, Juan, how come Crowley's out here talking to aliens and demons and you're not doing any of that? Like, is does he got something you don't? So I also feel like there's probably in a very pragmatic sense and a human level, there's like a pressure now that well, if people mm. believe that Crowley's talking to things like that's the new thing you got to do just like if i'm going to drop a book and i want the entire world to take notice i can't just say i wrote it but if i say you know some entity came down from the astral realm and bestowed this knowledge on me so you're reading the writings of you know an astral being i think that has like a better kind of marketing push to it too so i'm not saying that's what's going on here but I mean, I feel that, you know, marketing isn't something that got invented after the year 1920 or 1909. Marketing and all of that's been around since before any of our grandparents were born. I'm going to have to agree with you on that one. I mean, you say a lot of ridiculous things, but that I'm going to have to agree with that Thank one, you. Thomas. Because, yes, it, it does give it some sort of prestige, if you will. It does add to it where, hey, there's one thing. I'm the appointed king, right? I'm going to tell you what to do. Hey, God appointed me as king, bro. So now, like, it rings a little bit different. It's like, oh, you were appointed by God. Okay, I'm sorry. So, yeah, I think that's also a part of it. Now, Blavatsky, I haven't read any of her works. I've, I've skimmed her works, and I think it's Isis Unveiled or something Isis like that. Isis Unveiled, yeah. It, Which that, is, if you want to talk about a book, it's like 1,100 pages or something. It's very, like... That's, it's got to be on the, the list, though, man. That one is going to be a slog. And then what? Morals and Dogma is going to be a, a rough one to get through. But they've yeah. got to be on the list here for this yeah. show. Well, eventually we'll get to it. I'm not excited. I, I always I always gauge books on, I call it the scrotum meter. Depending on like how much my balls hurt after reading the chapter, I know how hard it was. So in this book in particular, we only did the first three chapters. Chapter one no sensations in the scrotum area chapter two slight tingling right slight tingling and then number three was like oh yeah dude like it was chafing just just it it just sucked right it it was it was it was a grind and again it's like this matter of fact attitude like i know this is what it is and are you are you dumb you don't know that you're on the third level of of the astral realm, bro. Like he, the, well, there's something else where this, when this book starts out and you didn't read the intro and I didn't, I didn't take any notes about this part in particular, cause it was talking more to the reader, but the book starts out and it talks about how I've got these very complicated topics, but they're extremely important for you to understand. So I'm going to explain it in the most simple form of English. So even the layman can understand every single principle here without having any prior occult knowledge. And he starts out pretty decent in chapters one and two, but then when you start turning that corner and you, you know, turn the page in the chapter three, which is the longest one of all of them. Now, all of a sudden, every other paragraph is like, well, all occultists know, you know, this maxim and this axiom. And and I got to almost every single one thinking I've never heard that before. And that's just because it's a it's a weird claim that was made in 1909 and never again because someone else came up with a better one. Or did he have some actual secrets that have just gone kind of undetected all this time? 
So I've, I'll point a few of those out, but it, but it leads out talking about and patting itself on the back about how easy it is going to be to read. And he kind of steers it that way. <laughs> but that means that every time that, that they don't explain something in detail, it just kind of stands out as like, eh, you, you're kind of lied about this part. Like you said you were going to explain this in detail and not leave it all to like vague uh, abstractions, which they kind of do in, in a certain points. So let me pull up a definition, right? I know we'll eventually get to Rosicrucianism, and I haven't done an actual episode on the Rosicrucians, but I want to just talk about the Rosicrucians really quickly because this is... And their mascot is Christian Rose Rosenkrauts, who's like a fictional sort of person, allegedly, that represents... Like I don't want to say like they're Jesus, but he's kind of their figurehead that represents everything that the Rosy Cross is supposed to stand for. Yeah, the... Exactly. So, kind of sort of like their messiah in a way. And so let me pull it up here real quick. Hold on. So and one thing, too, that was interesting to me was that in this book, he talks about all Rosicrucians believing that the, the human body is filled with a red light. And that red light is what makes blood red and that any animals <laughs> that have red blood, therefore, have the same sort of like supernatural cosmic energy. So I, I'd never heard it described in that particular way before, which is interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are that are based off of observation. I would I would call it that, right? Now, you have the crowd that obviously doesn't believe in in science because I mean it could it could be my new term that I'm using is imaginary and homosexual. I'm not using fake and gay anymore. Imaginary and homosexual. So some people think that science is that, that it's not to be trusted, right? But again... Just science in general? Just all of science? That's, that's kind of vague itself. No, well, not just science, but I mean, we know what happened right in 2020, and a lot of people think that... I think it's another form of religion, if you will, like this this scientism, I guess you could call it, where people will blindly... Well, I think it's the appeal to authority. It's that classic logical fallacy, but people... Like one of the, the logical fallacies in appeal to authority. It's basically when you say, well, I'm a doctor and a doctor says, or the commercials, it's like nine out of 10 dentists, you know, recommend this toothbrush. That's just an appeal to authority. It's like, you didn't tell me why the toothbrush was recommended, what kind of advantage this has over any other thing that's on the market. You just told me that nine out of 10 dentists prefer it. And I should just follow them because that's the majority of the assumed professionals. Mm. But it's the same reason as when you go on like mainstream media and they'll have like a doctor that they interview, but the doctors have got makeup on and they know how to like move their head. And <laughs> I mean, they're not like a legit doctor you would go and talk to. Yeah, they're yeah, a TV yeah. Doctor that gets hired to do those things. Title right? by doc by it's doctor that's, by that's title. That's the appeal to authority. Mm -hmm. So Rosicrucianism is or was spiritual and cultural movement that arose in Europe in the early 17th century after the publication of several texts announcing to the world. This uh, the unknown esoteric order. Now, some people will say that Rosicrucianism was this elaborate hoax, that it was just another what that thing Q, right? I don't want to trigger any algorithm. Yeah, but we're talking about something that that the book dates back to the fourteen hundreds, thirteen thirteen prior, right? So, so and, I mean, and, and that's well, funny, 13, right? 13, huh? It's it's funny you say thir right thirteen thirteen. That's a long time before the 17th century, which alleges when these when these manifestos came out. And it's not clear in this book what 
part of the information came from 1313 just to be clear i i got the impression that a lot of this was like modern but it would blow my mind a little bit if any of these claims that he's making date back that far like if we could trace specific claims that far and what was going on in 1313 thomas take that's a, when uh take a wild jesus guess. was born right no 13 knights templar bro <laughs> Knights Templar were going on in 1313. So I've I've heard the connection before. I've heard people trying to make the connection of the Rosicrucians. And and I've also heard that there were secret societies during the time of Jesus Christ. Like during that time, there were secret occulted societies that were operating in the background and orchestrated something. So, I mean, that's also... every. I want to mention every secret society that still exists to modern day in the West at least all claim that they came from the Knights Templar. Freemasons claim it. All of the, the various Freemason sects that come out of that, Rosicrucians claim it. Um, okay, maybe not every single one. Like I, I don't know if the OTO claims all the way back there, but I guess through like the Baphomet connection, you can almost say that anyone that integrates Baphomet uh, would essentially be hearkening back to Knights Templar too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, take your pick, and it feels like you could throw a dart at a board at least and have a very good chance of hitting a modern-day secret society that traces themselves back to Knights Templar because again, it gives you that clout, right? If it's like if nine out of 10 of the secret societies on the planet all say that they're as old as and contain the same secrets as Knights Templar, then what are you even doing if you don't claim the same thing? Mm-hmm. Somebody said they don't trust you, bro. What do you have to say about that? This occultist, the Lux guy. <laughs> I don't even know who this guy is, bro. This guy's. Is... I mean, poke and prod me, bro. Go at it. I don't care. So, yeah, the Knights Templar, right? The, the, there's that connection there. And I've also heard people talk about that because the sign, the emblem that they use on the front of the one of the first manifestos was the sign of John D's Monus Hieroglyphica. So they were talking about how John D kind of had this hand in creating the Rosicrucians. And now I've studied it's a John, common theme, right? It is a having, common theme. Having communication with these astral beings and bringing their information back down to earth. Yes. And and I mean, it wasn't just John D though. It was, it was people way before him. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, but there's a lineage, right? Like it's yes. it, like, if you could imagine like a cosmic baton getting passed off, yes. it yes. kind of goes through a very specific set of hands. Yes. Yes. And, and again, they all influence each other. So try, Trimetheus, which was the guy who was the modern, the father of modern day cryptography. And I think we talked about in the Spinozian episode, the dopamine deep dive that we did recently, mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago, last week or something. And he was also supposedly in touch with, he had some sort of angelic magic where they were talking to angels, quote unquote. So again, there's that connection there. And so we have here, many were attracted to the promise of a quote, universal reformation of mankind through a science quote, built on esoteric truths of the ancient past, which quote, concealed from the average man provide insight into the nature and the physical universe and the spiritual realm, which they say had been kept for decades kept secret for decades until the intellectual climate might receive it. Now, that's some gatekeeping right there. That is some gatekeeping until the intellectual climate would receive it. It's like saying until all you idiots stop being such idiots, (laughs) wise enough, and then we'll finally give you this profane knowledge. And this universal reformation of mankind. Well, that sounds a lot like what the world order, not only that, but, Think about it, about it in an alchemical sense of it. So why were the Knights Templar, where did the gold come from for the Knights Templar to build all those cathedrals? And if we follow Falconelli's 
teachings or his words, if Falconelli was even a real person, which again, early 1900s, 20th century, right? The, the, the last alchemist, if you will, he was talking about how they concealed the secrets of the philosopher's stone, if that's even a real thing, in these cathedrals, right? To preserve the knowledge, but only the initiated were able to extract that information. So the universal reformation of mankind through a science built on esoteric truths of the ancient past. Now, that to me screams alchemy, trying to quite literally transform the entire humanity, right? And then that, I mean, Masons get accused of that all the time, this magnum opus, turning the lead of man, to, right? There it goes. Turning the lead consciousness of man into gold, right? This higher being, if you will, right? And, and Thomas I don't know can, anything about that. You don't know anything about that. So, mm-hmm. again, about Tubal Cain or any of that. And, and that's just, I'm, that's all I'm going to say about the Rosicrucians, that there were this mystic group. Now, it gets kind of metaphysical where they actual, was, was it an actual group? Was it a hoax from the very beginning? Were they just trolling? Was it the first 4chan post? And the Gadoo was just trying to get whatever, just get get a response from people. Who knows? We don't know. But some people follow it till today. Now, it's it's actually fairly large today. It is fairly large. Yes, and and I know a couple of people in the Rosicrucian order. So the 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 light research that I did, it, a lot of there's like a common thread that if you want to know about actual esoteric secrets and you want to unlock sort of old alchemical text that rosicrucian is one of the closer ones that gets you to it that was kind of a consensus after just you know contacting the few people i knew and reading up on you know different sort of organizations so i don't know it was interesting i I wouldn't advocate joining any group because there's so much you can just find online chip where is your respect brother the (laughs) hosicrucians don't don't come with that disrespect (laughs) put some respect on the name put some respect on these names so that's all let's, I'm going to say. Let's kick off, man. Let's that, kick that, off into you want, the book. You want to do it? You want to do it, Thomas? You want to start it off? Well, you, you do the intro. You didn't read the introduction, so let me do the introduction. Do, do the intro. I'll follow along so with the, you. So the, the book starts out, and it's and it's called A Word to the Wise. And since you didn't read this part, I guess that just implies something. But I have the first it sentence says, highlighted. Can I read the first sentence? Of The Word to the Wise? Yes. Oh, yeah. Go for it. The founder of the Christian religion stated an occult maxim. When he said, whoever, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall not enter therein. And then he puts Mark X 15. Where is that even from? That's a, it's a Bible quote, man. You never heard that quote before. No, I've never heard that. That quote. I mean, I've heard John was like, you accept my son and he, he lasers in on this and he makes a really good point, but it, it essentially boils down to that. He, he comes up, man, this is one of my favorite things, is when a writer's like, there's two kinds of people in the world, because it reminds me of like a, <laughs> like a bad 90s stand-up that you'd see on like Comedy Central at night, you know? Like, these people are like this, and these other people are like that. But he, he comes out the gate, and he's talking about there's these two main kinds of people that he's really frustrated with. So one who grasps at any new philosophy just to see how it supports their own ideas, and the philosophy itself is of minor importance. So that's this one person that just like jumps around to different religions and different concepts. And they're just constantly trying to fit things that justify what they already think of the world, but they're already kind of set in one way. 
even though they're open-minded enough to read about other things, they're still just trying to back up their particular worldview. He mentions another type of person, which is the skeptic. And it says that skeptics don't have the right mental attitude with any idea they didn't come up with themselves. And they shut their mind to any truth, which may be hidden, which they offhand reject. And I, I can kind of relate to both of these, I guess, in a way. Because uh, it's like, you know, you read a, a cool new idea and it's like, I don't agree with that. And sometimes you just kind of throw it out when that's just you, you know, filtering out for your own bias. But that second part about a skeptic, that's when, like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Mm. But he makes this point that children are incapable of that. Like a, like a child, and this book defines a child as anyone 14 or younger. I think that might just be a difference because I don't know if 14-year-olds in 2023 were anything like 14-year-olds in 1909. But he's basically saying children haven't developed such a strong worldview yet that when they encounter new information they don't put this like immediate barrier on it it's like oh that doesn't fit into my worldview because they're still forming their worldview and they don't they don't become as much skeptics uh because for that same reason they don't just like throw it out because they haven't figured out really what makes sense to them or not mm -hmm. so that's what this book is basically trying to explain that bible quote to mean that you're never going to understand if you've already kind of grown this like hard shell around what you really think and if you're not really open to new stuff but that also might be because he he says a whole bunch of crazy shit right after he mentions this part <laughs> and also real quick it's like this is you this is like your fault if you don't believe what i'm saying because you don't have eyes of a child so you're not going to heaven type of deal so he says here the rosicrucian cosmo conception is not dogmatic neither does it appeal to any other authority than the reason of the student it is not controversial but it is set forth in the hope that it may help to clear some of the difficulties which have beset the minds of students of the deeper philosophies in the past. In order to avoid serious misunderstanding, it should be firmly impressed upon the mind of the student, however, that there is no infallible revelation of this complicated subject, which includes everything under the sun and above it also. And again, when I read the table of contents, I didn't know that he went there, but he goes there and he goes hard in the paint. And this is a long book. I mean, there's a lot of information, bro. And like I said, if we'll come back to it, we're going to have to jump around and come back to this one later. But I feel like there's a reason to go through this entire book at some point. No, yeah, we chapter. can do that. We can do that. Absolutely. So continue, please. All right. Yeah, I got I got a couple other for the introduction here. So this one stood out to me. This one's somewhat verbatim. I've tried to like update a little bit just so it's easier to uh, to mm -hmm. express. It's exceedingly difficult to retract a hastily expressed opinion. Therefore, it's urged that the reader withhold all expression of either phrase or blame until the study of work has reasonably satisfied him of its merit or demerit. And the first thing I thought of was like, this doesn't exist in the world of podcasting and live streaming. You know what I mean? Like it's almost it's almost all hot takes. It's almost all instant knee jerk reactions and then kind of like hashing it out. But he makes a really good point here. And this kind of comes up in these sort of like esoteric secret societies where like once you say something, it's impossible to take those words back. So if you say something stupid in some front, you know, in front of someone or bumble your words up like I just did, like you can't ever take that back and it's just out forever. And that if you want to overcome that sort of, you know, weakness or perceived weakness to just don't say anything at all until you become an actual expert in something. Now, I don't, I don't think I could live my life like that. But he also mentions later on in this book, all sorts of aspects of like the great silence 
and the mm-hmm. great silence and the context when he writes about it, it has nothing to do with like the typical Christian great silence, which is when a monk takes like a, a vow of silence for a certain number of years to kind of prove that, you know, they're, they're chast and that they're willing to go. It's almost like fight club, right? The dudes that stand out in front of the fight club for like a week until they let them come in An initiation you put yourself. Yeah. yeah. You go through this initiation, but it also felt like that the wording of that great silence harkens back to the, him talking about like, just don't say anything until you're fully sure of something's merit. But well, again, since this is the intro, this could be him like, yo, don't don't talk shit about my book until you read the whole thing. Yeah, like don't don't critique it. Like I did find Which we're gonna do <laughs> what we're gonna do right now. We I did find some some reviews on it where this guy was talking about from the Christian point of view because a lot of people don't know that I was raised Pentecostal Christian when I you know younger as a as a little boy. A lot of people don't know that on my podcast I was raised Pentecostal Christian, but the that there was too demonic for him and that he couldn't really take it and that he couldn't finish well, the book. This, this book in particular? Yes. This book in particular. So again, I mean, I am a researcher, right? And everything that we, I want to point out too, that everything that we talk about, it doesn't necessarily mean that we believe in it. We're just here. I mean, we take what I was going to say at the beginning is that we take works like this and we extract crazy er <laughs> concepts like people are probably wondering what the hell a cosmic snail is a cosmic snail trail <laughs> like all these things which we extracted from this this stuff here so it's his favorite analogy in this and i'll I cut right to that but we'll revisit again but the snail thing is that he keeps bringing up this analogy of a snail has this like he he mentions it almost like an ether, but this like liquid that surrounds its body. And then when it decides that it, it's ready to start kind of constructing a home, then it it crystallizes. And the same way that that slime sort of crystallizes into a hard shell that then forms the home, he kind of mentions how we've got these like etheric bodies, and then around those etheric bodies they start to crystallize and form. He also mentions gloves. But it's almost like where these little spirits it's trapped a cosmic inside of these condom, brother. It's a cosmic That's condom. That's right. Yeah, the cosmic right. condom. Well, let's wait until we get to that part because I think that analogy is going to make way more sense. Let's wait. So, finish so up. One, in the one more thing from the intro, yeah, because this is the part that stood out to me the most, and I don't know if it helped a whole lot, but he says that that when he originally wrote the book in 1909 he mentions points in the body and that within these points and in vital aspects of your anatomy, this is where this, like uh, this cosmic energy kind of comes out and it can come out in clockwise spirals and counterclockwise spirals. It could be dense. It could be thin all depending on how much you refined your sort of like communication with this cosmic world for lack of a better word. But he mentions in the 1929 update that he wishes the original version would have described them as prisms and not points. Mm. And it's a, it's an interesting distinction because it's a prism going back to how they believe that there's this red light. That's actually like projecting across your body. So that if there's little prisms inside these vital points, the same way that light can bounce into a prism and either, you know, consolidate and turn into another color or split up into different colors. He just mentions that the the prisms being a a better analogy. So I'll, try my best to like mention prisms as we talk about some of this stuff. Do you have the visuals, Thomas? Do you want to pull those up in the background so I can bring them in and out of the, yeah, give me a little, give me a little bit. So this idea that's very theosophical. Again, these ideas are coming from Blavatsky. Again, I don't know how much material 
Heindel was taking from Bobatsky, but he was being inspired by Steiner. And again, I don't know how much of a circle jerk was going on between all these people in this community, but these all stem from, right, the the Eastern mysteries, right? The the It's very Tibetan Book of the Dead type of thing. We talk about re, it gets into reincarnation, what to do in order to avoid reincarnation. Like it, it gets into all that kind of stuff, which is very, I, again, I consider it Buddhist, right? We don't really talk about reincarnation. I was raised Pentecostal Christian. We don't really talk. So the, again, very theosophical. Every, every feeling has a different color. Every sound has a different color. So, and is, is that a slideshow, bro? No, it's just it's a bunch of different images from the book. Because so we have to show really the quick. diagrams too. Well, I'll I'll show some of them. It's just yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll show them right now. Actually, just throw me up really quick. All right, here you go. So so, here's a distinction that he's making in the book between we've got an ordinary man. So this is what an ordinary person would look like, and it is specific enough to if you notice if the energy is going clockwise or counterclockwise mm. that makes a difference so this is an ordinary person and you'll notice the difference is that this is a little bit less dense than say an involuntary clairvoyant this is a person that doesn't realize or, or they're not intentionally trying to become clairvoyant they might just see things um, and some of them realize that they're seeing things and they might become mediums and they might become kind of fortune tellers this is paraphrasing from the book but this is someone that hasn't really honed the ability and doesn't understand what they're doing. And then you've got a voluntary clairvoyant somewhere in here. Yeah, there you go. So here's the involuntary. And look, the difference between an involuntary and voluntary is going to be the direction at which this energy kind of flows in and out of the body. See how it reversed? That's really the only main difference between these two. Um, but it's still coming through all of the same points of the body. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, sorry, prisms. So imagine One, two, three, that each four, of these five, six, are different seven. prisms in your body. It's like the seven and different the, chakras. Are there seven different points? So there's a, there's a lot of consolidation between, like you were saying, Eastern mysticism mm -hmm. and trying to bring it into kind of Christian mysticism. So a lot of this gets redescribed as heavens, and a lot of things get redescribed as like Christ consciousness. Um, so th this one was the interesting one. And then, yeah, let me go through some of the little charts and real here. Real quick, uh, I know we have a lot of people on my side, but everybody go... Go subscribe to Paranoid American's YouTube as well because he is streaming it on that side. Go give it a like and everything else. So, yeah, we have 111 people. Make sure to sign up for the Kickstarter. I'm going to post the link now. Make sure to sign up for the Kickstarter. Last time we got, we have up to 50 people on the Kickstarter. We're halfway there. We're halfway there. So make sure to if sign up. If you just go to ParanoidAmerican.com, at the very top of that page, there's a link that brings you right to the Chosen One issue two. And I agree so with just... Gordy. I, I, shout out to Gordy. I wanted to say earlier, but I was driving. I've gone through a few of my Rosicrucian books, and they, they kind of suck. They all say the same thing. And, and, well, and a lot of, like, tr source... Trust me, bro. I talked to the elder brothers of the Galactic Federation. The Ashtar Galactic Command was trying to, you know, like I'm like, bro, what do you, like, what do you want, dude? Come on. Like, I'm glad to source. hear that because this again, this is like the first one that I've read so far, and to to hear that they're all a little bit similar, I feel like, you know, I got the Whitman sampler in a way. Like I know, I know all the different flavors in here. So, uh, so like, so here's one of the examples which I'll, I'll try to get into. It's going to help to have this visual as we get into it. But I mentioned that, that it almost felt like homework. Like I honestly felt like yes. I was in 
chemistry class or I was doing like a worksheet. My balls points, were aching trying the to get through some time. of this. But we've got these different worlds, essentially the four kingdoms, um, which is you know we've got we've got the the pure spirit world, we've got a world of thought, we've got a desire world, and then we've got a physical world. And these charts over on the right, they're kind of and forgive me if I if I bumble all of this up, but on the right here, you can see mineral. It stops at level three of the physical world, um, so it's basically incapable of having any sort of desires of itself. All of its desires kind of come from this like spirit world, and this this is we're gonna where we're gonna get into the archons, and we're gonna get yep. into like yep. you die and your spirit goes up, and you use that to like re and you can kind of like control minerals at that point. But then right next to mineral, you've got plant. So a plant at this point. Um, it's getting closer to, to actually being connected to like the desire world and the desire body, but it's not quite there. Whereas the animal, it's actually partially in this desire world. The human goes all the way up here into the world of thought and, and the book. And I don't know if Rosicrucia in general, but it makes these claims of that animals are not capable of higher form thought of like an abstract thought that they can think about in their head and then bring it into, you know, the, the focus of their mind and then make that into a reality. Whereas animals are just kind of acting on their immediate desires, hence this desire world, desire body. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that they kind of make a point of. But they also mentioned that us and most red-blooded animals, we still share the same spirit. It's like the exact same thing that would be inside of a rock would be inside of a person. And this reminds me of like, uh, I don't know if it's the Gospel of Thomas, but it's like pick up a rock and I am there, mm -hmm. uh, which kind of describes like spirit, like the spirit of some higher power being inside of just inanimate objects. Yeah. And James, James always comes in with the fire. Animals don't have an ego. They have group souls, like these universal souls. And that's why they all act the same. Yep. He get he gets into that too, where, yeah. where he mentions that, I mean, this one was fascinating to me that if you kill a person or, or like if you harm a person, you're harming an individual and it kind of stops with that mm. human because the human's capable of ego, but because mm. animals don't have ego, they have this kind of like a group consciousness. When you kill an animal, you're actually harming every animal on the planet that belongs to that group. You just harmed that group directly. But if you hurt a mm. human, you're not necessarily hurting all of humanity directly because we like we have more i guess agency that's it breaks down a little bit for me but that that logic's explained a few times in this book so let's get into chapter one the rosicrucian cosmo conception chapter one the visible and invisible worlds and he starts right off again very matter of fact the first step in occultism is the study of the invisible worlds these worlds are invisible to the majority of people because of the dormancy of the finer and higher senses whereby they may be perceived. So I highlighted the majority of people are on a similar footing in regard to the super physical world as the man who is born blind is to our world of sense. Although the light and color are all about him, he is unable to see them. And I love, I'm going to give this guy credit where credit is due. He used... Yes, he'll come up with, he'll explain to you some crazy idea and then he'll give you the most fire analogy right after it. So you're able to it's that Palmer Hall influence, man. I'm capture what he was trying to say. I'm not saying I agree with it at all, but again, 
To him, they are non-existent and incomprehensible simply because he lacks the senses of sight wherewith to perceive them. Objects he can feel, they seem real, but light and color are beyond his ken. So I can agree with that as far as people not being able to sense certain things. We, From what I've heard, I don't know. But when somebody loses their sight, allegedly their other senses become finer they come become more attuned like what's that movie daredevil where he's blind but then he can hear really well Mm. and and can do all this craziness right in the book of eli it was a comic too not just the movie oh yeah well i mean i didn't (laughs) i don't know how to read but the the book of eli too the whole time it was a braille spoiler alert braille bible and he was blind it's like whoa like what what the heck happened so He goes on to say, uh, so with the greater part of humanity, they feel and see objects and hear sounds in the physical world. But the other realms, which the clairvoyant calls the higher worlds, are as incomprehensible to them as light and color are to the blind man. Because the blind man cannot see color. However, there is no argument against their existence and reality. So it's a good point, man. It's a great point. that, And so he's got a couple other ones, too. He's got an analogy that says. To un- and I'm going to replace physical world with natural world because it, it makes more sense the way I read it that way, but it's interchangeable. To understand the natural world, which is the world of effects, it's necessary to understand the supernatural world, which is the world of causes. Just like you see a streetcar in motion or you hear a clicking of a telegraph, again, 1909, but a, but a mysterious force which causes the phenomena remains invisible. We say it's electricity, but the name gives us no explanation. We learn nothing of the force itself. We see and hear only its effects. So just like color um, or sight, you know, just because you don't necessarily see it doesn't mean color doesn't exist. And just because you might not ever see electricity in motion, especially in 1909, um, you know, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So, and he makes an even more abstract claim, which I like this one even more. And he's talking about a house and he says that a house is yet invisible to all but the architect. He makes it objective on paper. He then draws the plans from this objective image and the thought form, the workmen construct a house of wood, iron or stone, which accurately corresponds to the thought form originated by the architect. Thus, his thought form became a material reality the materialist would assert that it's much more real now, lasting and substantial than the image in the architect's mind. But let us see, because the house could not have been constructed without first the thought form, and the material object can be destroyed by dynamite, earthquake, fire, or decay, but the thought form will remain. It'll exist as long as the architect lives, and for any number of houses similar to the one destroyed may be constructed, and not even the architect can himself destroy that thought form. Even after his death, the thought form can be recovered by those who are qualified to read the memory of nature, <laughs> which we'll get to later. Yeah. And he mentions that memory of nature thing, which blows my mind, too. But that this is a really interesting premise that the abstract concept of the house is more real than the material physical version of it because it can outlast it. And once it's out there in the open, you know, Pandora's box way, like you can't kill an idea. And I think that was a really cool way of putting it. And making analogy to like a house yeah and and this idea this this plays directly into like my pythagorean palace idea of where you don't know and and he says right 
those who are qualified to read the memory of nature. I mean, these are people who are remote viewers, right? We're talking about clairvoyance, whatever. And if you think of the world as a stage, as William Shakespeare, if he was even a real person, puts it, the world is a stage while everybody conducting their business on this stage is charging that stage. And these clairvoyants are able to tap into your energy wherever you've been or wherever you're going to go because of this, because when there's a building that's constructed, you don't, you don't know about the occulted scaffolding. And I mean, that's just not, not just for buildings. You can extrapolate that even further out language. We don't know the occulted scaffolding of language of, of letters, like of whatever you wanted the, the cartographer, right? Cartography, the cartographer is magician, the architect as magician, whatever you name it. If they're putting their intent into it, this thought form that will forever exist, you don't know what you're carrying further. So one example that I use, King James of the King James version of the Bible is a shady, shout out James. Yeah, shout out to James is a shady character, right? So, but it was a guy who was writing about the occult. Supposedly he was terrified. Was he the by one it. that was eating magical penises or was that another one? That was another one. That was another one. Okay. Yeah, we're going to have that okay. person on to talk. That was King Charles II, I think it was. Again, I'm not an esotericist in that. So I'm just saying every king. Every king at some point was eating a magical penis. Every king was probably eating penis of some sort. Yes, they were trying That's to actually it. when, like, after they get off the fancy chair, they go inside a little room, and in that room they eat a magical penis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... The idea will forever exist in this either very Akashic records y theosophical idea. Well, and even if you want to get into the pseudosciencey aspect, this is that concept of psychometry where if like a like an event happens in a room, all of the material and all the objects in that room kind of record that event. You can play it back or some mm -hmm. people can see it happen. So that's that's known as psychometry, <laughs> which I think is like a cool aspect of it. <laughs> 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 all right so i had a few other ones up here that let's see here that you skipped over he he all right so he's talking about how why is it and this is this is one of the things that i've seen as of lately where they want to they want to map out what they're calling what is it the T, the dmt realm it's got a name anyways there's a study right now where they're putting people under dmt by IV and they're mapping out the psychedelic realms. Now that sounds fun. There is some people in the community that are like, Oh no, that's demonic. And you know, you shouldn't be doing that. I've seen it on Twitter, right? The Twitter community. And he writes about why not that, that DMT in particular is demonic. Remember when you're on DMT, there's other entities on the other side. And if you interact with that, it's demonic. I mean, it's remember a lot of people don't know I was raised Pentecostal Christian, but in, when, when you're raised in Christian, they tell you if, if it's not of Christ, then it's, it's demonic. Right. So if it's, Could you just identify it as Christ then and, and be off the hook. No, I mean, I don't, can you, you talk, can't, you can't say that I'm talking to God. I mean, you bring up a good question. I mean, I know people who tell me, Oh, God told me it's like, how do you, know? how do you know who is He's like, hey, it's your boy, JC. Hey, dude, don't do that, bro. It's like, oh, thanks, Jesus. Like, I love you, bro. Like, we don't quit know. Quit off, dude. Yeah, and I quit doing that, right? Like, we don't know. And I've heard people all the time, like, oh, God told me. All right. Hey, that's fine. 
I mean, <laughs> if he told you, then don't do it, whatever. So the DMT realm, they were mapping it out. And he gets into this idea of it's a different experience for everybody. And people will see things differently within this other realm. And right here, suppose a newspaper sends 20 reporters to a city with orders to ride up. Reporters are or ought to be trained, trained observers. It is their business to see everything and they should be able to give a good description as can be expected from any source. Yet it is certain that of the 20 reports, no two would be exactly alike. It is much more likely that they would be totally different. Although some of them might contain leading features in common, others might be unique in quality and quantity of description. So is it an argument against the existence of the city that these reports defer? So he explains this idea that it's different for everybody and everyone's description of these higher realms or these spiritual realms defers. And then he gives you a fire ass analogy of like, yo, that makes sense. Thanks. I like that. Like if you send 20 people to Chicago to write about what Chicago's about and one guy writes about a, like a stray cat that he followed, you know, for eight hours and that's his article. And another one writes a restaurant and it's like, you know, that this one place can't possibly be all these different things. So one of you guys are lying or one of these things is incorrect when in fact, maybe they're all correct. <laughs> then there's another analogy that we've come up with before too, about, it's like a like an old Chinese proverb or something where there's there's a bunch of blind men in a room feeling up an elephant, right? And one grabs the tail and one grabs the dick and one grabs the ear and they're all describing the the different appendages that they're holding on to and they're all kind of, you know, arguing, No, no, it's got a it's got a huge dick and <laughs> one guy's like, No, 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 it's got like a real thin thing, you know, but they're all holding on to the same elephant, and they're yeah. all describing the same thing, but they just have different vantage points. So he's he's going on and I think some of this part of this book i get a vibe that he's trying to explain apparitions and the ghost world and a lot of the supernatural things that would be reported in the ner- the early 20th century i think he's sort of like molds and adapts some of the things that he talks about because they seem to just fit so nicely into like ghost reports again the the chat never ceases to amaze me with this the, is disgusting guys this is Come disgusting on. where is everyone's respect anyways <laughs> talk about christ consciousness we have 118 people make sure to hit the like button make sure to subscribe to paranormal americans channel make sure to show everybody else in the chat i got a cultist lux go check out his channel we had strange brew podcast make sure to check out his channel so thank you all for being here tonight i'm having a lot of fun and Yes, bro. This idea of it's different for everybody. And I've never, I don't think I've asked you, Thomas, what are your thoughts on, you might've said at the beginning, but I don't really pay attention when you're talking to me, but what are your thoughts on the unseen? world? do you believe in ghosts? Do you believe in Bigfoot and stuff? What are your thoughts on all that? Are UFOs real to you? Are they imaginary and homosexual as well? It's a spectrum, man. It's a freaking spectrum. You're on the spectrum. I know you're on the spectrum, but (laughs) they're all, yeah. I, I feel like if there's a spectrum, right, to like the least believable to the most believable, ghosts are probably somewhere at the least believable. And I would say like Bigfoot maybe on like the most believable to me. Uh, so like I actually feel like there's probably undiscovered species and I might feel that there could be, I don't know, maybe some alien type stuff. But no, I, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts and apparitions. And like that's why I've offered to summon a demon live with you before. But <laughs> You're not man enough to do it yet. No, so. no, no. And like I but, love those. But he makes a he makes a good call, like a good claim throughout this book, but it still doesn't sell me on the spirit realm. Yeah, 
Yeah. Again, a lot of sor- the source, trust me, bro. You're going to have to take my word for this. I talked to the elder brothers, Paranoid American. Well, I, I didn't know this dude was on his deathbed for like two years uh, to on the lead up to this. So if anything, yes. maybe this went into his genius marketing, but it does give it a little bit more credit that a dude that's been dying for two or three years is writing about the afterlife and i see Appeal to authority I, I realize it's a fallacy but it works i see slick in the in the chat you know what day this guy died bro in oceanside california he died on january 6 1919 okay so we have i know we have here slick is somewhere in the chat he's probably gonna lose his, his mind he's crunching the numbers right now oh somebody's on to me bro somebody said juan is interdimensional yeah <laughs> we've got the lowest form of one here on on this particular <laughs> show though so yes he was on his deathbed from 1909 to 1919 suffering a severe heart condition and with an adverse financial situation but was indomitable w- with his an indomitable will and great energy he was able to accomplish the great work of the brothers of the rose cross so he was able to pull it through and pull it together but we have here chemical region of the physical world in the rosicrucian teaching the universe is divided into seven different worlds or states of matter i think that's an important distinction here that it's not it's not that there's like these different worlds that are separate from each other but all the worlds and he has an analogy about a sponge and liquid we'll get to but all the worlds coincide at the same time Um, and it's just like the density of the matter in these worlds that differ, but they, they all overlap with each other. Yes. They're always interacting with one another. And that kind of like, I was like, what? Right. They're bumping into each other. That's very, I know we did that episode on Rene Descartes, but Rene Descartes mechanistic universe theory was just that, that there are different forms of matter that are rubbing up against each other and causing different changes in the universe or reality or whatever you want to call it. And again, this was after Rene Descartes. So he could have been, inspired by these guys but the seven different worlds the chemical region of the physical world right world mm-hmm. of god number one world of virgin spirits number two number three world of divine spirit number four world of life spirit number five world of thought number six desire world and number seven physical world and you guessed it ladies and gentlemen where are we we're in the physical world the lowest of the lowest very gnostic this body is just a cosmic condom that's holding us back from experiencing the true essence of whatever life is and guess what in this book he reveals the true nature and the purpose of life so stay put if you want to learn the true purpose of life and of here the matter of these worlds also varies in density the physical world being the densest of the seven it always goes back to that seven right the seven angels or seven elohim or seven different chakras, seven different steps of alchemy. You have, what else is seven? Seven days of the week. Give me another seven. Seventh heaven. Seventh. No, give me another one. An, an occult, esoteric one, bro. Give me. Go. Triple seven, bro. We've talked about All the right. lottery machines have occult origins and that it used to be, uh, it used to have not a monetary sort of denomination to it. See, Sonia gets that's it. That's all been perverted. Thank you. Sonia gets it. The cosmic condom. I get, exactly. We're being held back. We're being held back, and also I missed the world of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then we got here, this other one over here. 
we're just fleshlights of the elder brothers or whatever they want to call them. So, all right, here we go. Let's get serious. Let's get serious. The seven C's. Let's get serious. Where are we at? The three dense subdivisions of the physical is the solids, liquids, and gases. So he's just breaking it down again because this is very the theosophist homework. from this well, is the homework part <laughs> homework but not only that but you have to understand that there were especially hp Vavatsky was all about the micro so if you understood man right we did the occult anatomy of man and man mm. being this universe this smaller universe right in the micro i scale. feel like that anatomy of man came from this te- like manly palmer hall pieced the majority of that together from rosicrucian teachings mm-hmm. yo who the who the fuck is this? And I'm not Mexican, by the way. Out of America. Can somebody block this? He's even worse idiot? than Mexican, bro. It's, you couldn't even imagine. Can somebody fucking block this idiot. I'm not on the YouTube. Let me block this retard. Um, so he's breaking it down because there are different Cherry King blocked that idiot. The <laughs> the idea of understanding man as a microcosm. And when you understand the microcosm, you understand the macro, the bigger universe. And whatever you're able to do on the micro scale, you're able to break it up in the bigger picture of things. So to all the StarCraft players out there, though, that's not necessarily true. Just because you're good at micro doesn't mean you're good at macro. I don't know what that means. I wish I knew what that's that means. O- that's okay. Okay, so <clears throat> here we go. The careful consideration given by the occultists to the characteristics of the physical world might seem super superfluous were it not that he regards all things of the viewpoint differing widely from that of the materialist the latter recognizes three states of matter solids liquids and gases these are all chemical because derived from the chemical constituents of earth from this chemical matter all the forms of mineral plant animal and man have been built hence they are as truly chemical as the substances which are commonly so termed thus whether we consider the mountain or the cloud that envelops its top the juice of the plant or the blood of the animal the spider's thread the wing of the butterfly or the bones of the elephant the air we breathe or the water we drink are all composed of the same chemical substance tell me that doesn't sound like a magical spell right there the blood of the animal and a spider's thread the wing of a butterfly and the bones of an elephant yes and very very grimoric or i mean the juice of the plant (laughs) right the juices of the plant and yeah absolutely and he's not wrong it's like in the full metal alchemist when they're trying to bring back the mom and they get all the elements that are composed that are that make up a man a human being and they put it together in this transmutation circle but they don't get it because they're missing that one thing right what the the soul that that one and and let me let me point this one out because this is the part that i bolded that i think made the most sense to me And he says that as all forms of mineral, plant, animal, and man are chemical, they must logically be dead and devoid of feeling as chemical matter in its primitive state, and the Rosicrucians assert that they are. So this is, I think, for 1909 is a pretty heavy statement. And it's kind of what what Cart, uh, you know, Rainy Cart was mentioning, where the soul can't be in your fingers and your arm because you can chop <laughs> yeah. your arm off and you've still got your soul. Oh, but um, he argues like, otherwise. I know well, argues he led otherwise. Into the, the pineal gland. He read into the pineal yeah. gland. But these guys are saying that it's not actually stored in some kind of physical space. That it it lives in between, I guess, like the atoms or the individual components that are dead and lifeless, uh, which I think is sort of a, a deviation from that Cartesian sort of 
uh, philosophy that we went over in that previous book. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. So let's see here. Uh, what is it then determines the confirmation? So we have four kingdoms and then he breaks it down even further. The four kingdoms, mineral, plant, animal, and man. And I tried to bring this up the other day when we were doing that episode. Were you on there, Thomas? The Spinozian? It doesn't matter. Cipher? It doesn't matter. Yeah, you're right. You, you weren't listening anyways. Yes, exactly. But I try to bring up this mineral, this plant, and these other worlds that are, that are occupying this same reality that we're in. And I had somebody reach out to me, and they told me that the... There are some sects of groups, I guess, right, in the forest, shamanistic groups, if you will, that their theurgy, their 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 magic, the thing that affects their reality are plants. And I know we were talking about the Voynich manuscript and how it was like different drawings of plants or whatever those were. But for some groups, they quite literally believe that the the plants are the ones that are the te- they're giving them that knowledge. They're the ones affecting their reality. And I mean, when you take mushrooms, kind of sort of feels like you're in a different dimension of some sort, you know. And I know I know I, you like the. Mushrooms. I don't put fungus in the same category as plants. I don't think they deserve to be in the same category. To me, fungus is way closer to animal. It's a great line for really? me. Really? Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So some scientists contend that there is feeling in all tissue, living or dead, to whatever kingdom it belongs. They include even these substances ordinary class as minerals in their category of objects have having feeling. And to prove their contentions, they submit diagrams with curves of energy obtained from tests. Another class of investigators teach that there is no feeling even in the human body except in the brain, which is the seat of feeling. So we're getting into this idea that you're talking about where is consciousness in our stomach? Is it in our balls? Is it in our or your foot or whatever it is? It's like, no, well, this guy's talking about pain, but you, you get what I'm saying. And then he, he calls the brain is only the keyboard of the wonderful instrument upon which the human spirit plays its symphony of life, just as the musician expresses himself upon his violin. Wow, that was beautiful. He's trying to get he's trying to get a little flowery there. But he also <laughs> mentions in that same either there or later that if you were to take the bow of a violin and rub it against the plate that you would see these patterns emerge. He's talking about cymatics where you see those people that take mm. a speaker and they'll put a uh, fluid or they'll put sand on it and play different frequencies and it turns into different patterns. He's explaining that as this kind of underlying consciousness that that those are these desire forms that can even apply to minerals. And he mentions that when ice forms on like a windowsill, it doesn't just arbitrarily frost up all the time. If you look close enough, it follows certain patterns. There's almost like a matrix or like this, this design construction. Um, and really he's kind of talking about almost like skeleton diagrams of how the molecules fit together. But he's describing those patterns themselves as this like desire form, that that, that, that form and that intelligence is coming from above and by the time it makes it down to the mineral world, it's still able to express itself, but the mineral can't act on it. It just kind of like happens around it. This is very avatary, right? Yes, there are some tribes that wrap their hair around the branches of trees to connect and download knowledge. Kind of like how the oh yeah, as she says right there. But yeah, Sonia got. Is that you. what those hemp necklaces are for? I don't know, bro. But I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, the the the. 
thought come from the gut before the neurons get to the thought mate you are what you eat saying comes from truth so yeah i've heard that before as well and so we have here in one sense the physical world is a sort of model school or experiment station to teach us to work correctly in the others i like that one a lot this is this is our preschool right that means that the physical world is our training like training wheels this yes. is like your dad holding on to the bike yeah jesus take the wheel again jesus take the wheel and then he, he goes on it does this whether or not we know the existence of those other worlds thereby proving the great wisdom of the originators of the plan if we had knowledge of none but the higher worlds we would make many mistakes which would become apparent only when physical conditions are brought to bear as the criterion and then he goes to illustrate again here's he's going to come with a fire analogy let us imagine the case of an inventor working out his idea of a machine. First, he builds the machine in thought. So again, back to that architect idea. And in his mind, he sees it complete and in operation, performing most beautifully the work it is designed to do. He next makes a drawing of the design. And in doing so, perhaps find the modifications in his first conception are necessary. When from the drawings, he has become satisfied the plan is feasible. He proceeds to build the actual machine from the suitable material. Now it is almost certain that still further modifications will be found necessary before the machine will work as intended. It may be found that it must be entirely remodeled or even that it is altogether useless in its present form and it must be discarded and a new plan evolved. But mark this for here is the point. The new idea or plan will be formulated for the purpose of eliminating the defects in the useless machine. Had there been no material machine constructed thereby making evident the faults of the first idea, a second and correct idea would not have been formed. So we learn more from our mistakes than from our successes. And I kind of like going back to Manly P. Hall, Initiate to the Flame, where he talks about we are the Philosopher's Stone and experience is that chipping away of that Philosopher's Stone, creating those facets in that stone, hence bringing forth or something out of the stone, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, very. Well, well you know, you want, you want to go from having facets on the stone and having the what they call the rough ashlar and turn it into the perfect ashlar. That's where you get like the perfect Saturnian cube. Ooh. But, but I want to mention that his, um, his analogy there, I mean, if it's not overly obvious, he's talking about the reason that spirit has to come into the physical world is to like keep help refining the physical world um mm -hmm. and therefore keep help like refining the spirit um and it's and it's not like there's a way to get out of it but he also meant then i don't know if we're going to get all the way into the details so here it makes the most sense but there's a few places in this book where he mentions that first when you're sort of in the heavens either in the first or the second heaven then you've got a way to help shape the earth so that when you return back to earth again in the physical form it reflects a completely different reality whether that's terraforming things creating mountains making volcanoes go off flooding places you know making deserts vice like all these different aspects you're actually changing the entire makeup of the earth so when you go back again you can have a completely different experience but then he mentions that as your your matter is kind of dropping through these different worlds into the physical world you, you're almost like being able to decide like what you want to grab and reconfigure yourself. And then he even mentions that as you're a fetus in the womb, you're consciously 
making decisions and like adapting to information that you're bringing back from your previous life or whatever mm. information you might have discovered in that initial fall into the physical world. And you've got sort of this short amount of time until you're born to kind of like finish every little tweak. And that's that aspect of first you think about it, you know, that's the architect drawing the thing in his head where it's in this like thought form world. And as it goes into that physical world, in the invention analogy, it's like at each stage or each world or each phase of matter, you have another opportunity to kind of tweak it and make it better based on the rules of that kind of realm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, and, and it would make, but the, the thing that I don't like about that is that this existence that we're living in now, again, very, back to very Gnostic ideas, is this sort of, of homework, this sort of chore, and you are doing your best to break free from it, right? But again, I mean, to each their own. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I read it that same way because he he makes the a good argument. Well, it's it's okay to interpret things wrong. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. Just kidding. But he, but he makes a he makes a case that a lot of people that start getting into this like high spiritual like philo- philosophical stuff, you get into this like Rosicrucian, you find out that there's these six other worlds and there's a silver cord that connects you to your cosmic spirit body and that's where the snail trail comes from and we'll get into all that but that that doesn't mean you should devalue the material world and you shouldn't devalue the physical world and that we have to experience the physical world through our physical senses because that's the language of this very dense reality but it but you don't want to discount it because that entire sequence of events of this matter falling through those worlds and getting down to the physical world this is like if you got your ticket and you waited in line to go on, you know, Space Mountain. Like physical <laughs> world is getting into the roller coaster and riding Space Mountain. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And getting off of it. And that's when you're when you're going back and you get back into the line. You're like, do I want to sit in the front of the car next time? Do I want to sit in the back of the car? Do I want to take a break and go get a snack? And he kind of mentions that this is sort of like this weird reincarnation thing where you almost get to decide what body you want to live in or what kind of life you want to lead. But it's not, it's not based on you die and you're like, okay, next time I want to be rich. You know, I want to have a yacht and I want to like just be born into money or I want to be famous. It's more like once you get into that, that spiritual realm, you don't care about all the material stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what experience do I need to round out my overall being or like what crazy shit haven't I got into yet? And then you just steer everything. You know, I haven't been a, a Cambodian, you know, single mom before. <laughs> so maybe that's going to be my next experiment. And it's not, and it has nothing to do with your limbic system or like the physical pleasures. This is, these are decisions that you're making when you're already sort of like elevated mm. and it doesn't sound like there's a way to get out of it. Everyone has to go through this process. So he gets into the etheric region of the physical world. So we're diving. Do you have the, he has a chart for this particular thing, right? The seven different layers of, the I think you showed it earlier, but he, the etheric region of the physical world. As soon as we enter this realm of nature, we are in the invisible, intangible world where our ordinary senses fail us. Hence, this part of the physical world is practically unexplored by material science. And I have to agree with him. I think this is what, you know, people go, oh, quantum is just another fancy. T-. Like, this is what quantum physics is all about, about it's another word for the occult. I think 100% that it's another another way of changing up the same term, right, that the alchemists used back then and just giving it a fancy title. And the alchemists are these guys with the white lab coats on. So where are we at? We're on the 
physical world. All the way at the bottom. That's it goes from least dense to most dense. Mm -hmm. And if you look that there's like seven little um within each kingdom, this is where the algebra starts coming in. So within each kingdom, there are seven different steps. And the oh. bottom three steps versus the top three steps, they indicate sort of like uh, like a needle moving towards one step or the other, whereas the middle one is kind of neutral. And that's where you see mineral is kind of neutralizes where it, it doesn't, it, it can't like elevate itself into the next worlds and vice versa. It's just like a, this downward pattern. And then we've got some other interesting ones here. So you've got the physical world at the bottom here. And if you start at the very, very um, beginning the, the of right serious here, life, Thomas, you're not there is, yet. So here, so, so this is a good one. So here's like the ego, right? This is, we're going to, we're going to, sort of step in and say spirit ego whatever you want to call this it's kind of recycling through all of these different worlds so it Ooh. starts all the way up here at the world of abstract it goes down into concrete thought then it gets this desire world so this is where it desires to actually have a body within the physical world and here's where you actually turn into a human being so you've got your birth of your dense body that's our physical body the, the skin condom the cosmic glove that we're kind of wearing and then there's all these different steps, right? So at age seven, you've got the birth of your mm -hmm. uh, vital body growth. There's Again, there's going to be a pop quiz at the end of this. There's the birth <laughs> of the desire body, which is puberty. And again, he marks this at 14. There's an interesting note here where he actually mentions that um, at age – but before age 14, you're still being supplied by, uh, I guess, hormones that come from your parents that kind of like get stored up in your – gland I, i'm not i don't want to misquote which gland it is um but that like once once you hit the age 14 roughly enter puberty you start producing all of these hormones for yourself they no longer come from your parents so that's where they kind of make this argument there's like a scientific correlation to this particular year when the the human body actually starts producing all of its own nutrients and chemicals um and then once you go beyond age 14 yeah you double that. This is the beginning of your serious life. And I, I noted this is when I started Paranoid American was at age 28. I don't know if that's just a coincidence or what. Um, but as you go, and then they basically assume that you're going to die around 50. Is I that guess, 33 right there? 33. Yeah. Or maybe it might be 35. I'm not really sure. It's really hard. to. to what do you think of these. this comment? The person named Zaza Demon with the picture of AOC. <laughs> <laughs> So, damn, so Joker was being meta when he said that. He told Batman that he's less than human. Why so serious? So, and yeah, look at Andrea. Yeah, Andrea, you can look, you can watch us both. I mean, I love Longo. He's my dad. But, yeah, you got a tough choice because I put out fire too, so. <laughs> so, yeah, th this, th and you're skipping to chapter three. So we're, I want to get well, here. Well, you wanted a you wanted a fancy chart, so I got yeah, yeah. I meant the first one. Okay, air is, and then he goes on. Air is invisible, right? We're talking about the etheric region of the physical world. Air is invisible, yet modern science knows it exists by means of instruments. Its velocity, as wind, can be measured by compression. It can be made visible as air. So he's talking about like all these different apparatuses that they use to. He calls them wizard of the laboratory or laboratory, however you want to say it. And how there are things to measure this thing that we don't see, but we feel. And I think that's an argument that a lot of people use when it comes to religion. 
because they feel it. Therefore, everybody else needs to feel it as well. And I mean, teach their own, like, just cause source, trust me, bro. Again, I'm not saying that I haven't felt the Holy spirit. I have felt something at church that once the congregation is going and they're doing their whole thing. Cause a lot of people don't know I was raised Pentecostal Christian, but that's besides the point. The priest went to jail for that though. Yeah. So man has within himself faculties, which eliminate distance and compensate for lack of size to a degree as much greater than the power of telescope and microscope as there theirs exceeds that of the naked eye. Okay. That sounded really yeah, dude, wrong. He, he also makes some claims in here that you can train your eye to see better than the best microscope. No, which... no, no. But, hey, I had an optometrist on, an eye doctor, an eye surgeon, and he told me the same mm -hmm. thing, bro. He really? told me, yeah, he told me that th th that's what they don't want you to know, that you're able to train your eyes to see better. But, again, it's a whole... Than a microscope? It's a whole industry, Thomas, of glasses. So why would they? It goes back to the pharmaceutical and these. Why, why are you feeding the beast then, man? Take those, take the glasses off right now. What? I don't know back. how to do this esoteric <laughs> stuff. Like, how are you supposed to train your eyeballs? You're supposed to do push-ups with your eyes or something. And he didn't tell me how to do it, but he said that you technically could train your eyes to see. I have astigmatism, bro. I don't know. So. We have here, man has within himself. It's a bold claim. I'm saying it's a bold claim to say that you can train your eye to see better than a microscope. Although I've been to Ripley's Believe It or Not, and I've seen the dude that, <laughs> that drew, like, that did the whole Lord's Prayer on a grain of rice. Yes. So I, I guess it's possible. And he was in a jail cell, so he didn't have a microscope. These senses or faculties are the mean of investigation used by occultists. They are their open sesame in searching for truth. <laughs> you have chemical ether. This ether is both positive and negative in manifestation. I don't know if you want to get into all this because he starts to break these things down. We got a lot. Were. Dude, we're on, we're on page like 12 of 50 of notes here. So, All right, take the helm, bro, because I have a whole bunch of this. So he goes through the, def the different... We got, we got chemical ether. We've got life ether. And he mentions that in life ether that forces work along a positive pole, which is like the female during gestation and that they enable a female to do positive active work to bring <laughs> forth a new being this in is the kitchen of energy yeah. and that the negative pole enables men to produce semen. That's what the negative part does. Uh, he mentions light ether um, and that this is what generates the blood heat. This is what like, you know, raises your body temperature he also mentions that plants don't have this particular facet. And this is one of the things where I looked up because there is something called uh, thermogenic plants, which do generate their own heat. Some of them do it to attract flies. Um, some of them do it for a bunch of different reasons, but there absolutely are plants that can generate their heat, but it's, it works on slightly different principles. And I actually, I said, do you have the cucumber clip? There's a cucumber. <laughs> am I going to get, a, am I going to get flagged for it? We, bro? Might, we might get flagged, but, but screw it, man. So no, I, I, I don't get flagged. All right, hold on. Hold just on. do it, man. YouTube. What, what's it called? Squirting cucumber? Squirting cucumber. And this is a video from the Smithsonian, but there's absolutely plants that generate their own heat. One of them is called the squirting cucumber. And it basically, uh, you know, generates a bunch of seeds through negative life ether, I guess. And when it generates enough heat, it creates a pressure that just expels all the seeds. Listen, listen. Yes. 
I had Jay Widener tell me that animals, because, and I've always wondered about this. He says that there's a way, because there is an etheric body. He, he talked to us about that. That is, you know, a certain amount of inches off your skin that keeps you warm. But he also talked about how that's why you see fox or foxes that are in the, these Arctic regions that when you look at them, you go, damn, that fox must be cold. He's like, no, no, these animals generate their own their own heat energy field. If you look at Wim Hof, Wim Hof does something like that similar too. Like he'll generate the, he bro, he climbed Everest in shorts and like no shoes on. How bananas is that? Is there something you're able to train in your body that's able to let you do this? You know what I'm saying? Like it's, you have the video? Yeah, you're, yeah, you're taking forever. This is this is important. All right, all right. <laughs> we don't we don't have the sound. Oh, okay. But we got the visual. All right, so it's, everybody watch this cucumber squirt. <laughs> this is an example of a thermogenic plant, which apparently Go. was not popular in oh. early 1900. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Thomas got a strike on Twitter for this. Yeah, yeah. I posted this, and it was taken down for for not being appropriate. I mean, yeah, sure. But yeah, that's another way of, wow. Okay. So all that to say that there, there definitely is examples <laughs> of plants that could in theory be making use of this light ether that, mm -hmm. uh, that they describe. Yes. The next one is a reflecting ether. And this is an idea of the house, which existed in the mind. And this is where he brings up this memory of nature. And to me, the memory of nature, you mentioned already, is kind of like the Akashic records. This is where, like the idea already exists out there and you're you're actually using a certain type of ether that lets you pick up on that thought form that already exists out in the world i guess mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so we have light ether what else we have reflecting ether the desire Those are the four ethers you've got you've got chemical life light and reflecting and then he gets into the desire world where they also have like a seven different similar regions. Yeah. yeah seven. So it, I like that one. I didn't see that, that chart that you pulled up, but it breaks always goes. So you have the seven and then boom, you have another seven. And then it was, what was it? Manly P hall, the seven seals of interpretation of like scripture or whatever it was. So there's always that seven. I'd, I'd still love that. His interpretation of seven seals that, that in order to understand an occult topic, you have to understand it in seven different capacities. So we have here, the, I've, I've, I do have uh, an image here. Let me see. We have the desire world. The desire world has seven subdivisions called regions, but unlike the physical world, it does not have the great divisions corresponding to the chemical and etheric regions. So yeah, that's a, of course. Max. So here we are on the, the far left um, going to the far right. And then if you notice in the second little row here, each of these worlds has seven different. Where's regions. the curve, Thomas? If I can see the boat <laughs> all the way at the end, if I zoom in, where's the curve, bro? I don't even know, man. I don't even have <laughs> the answer to where the curve is. Honestly, the, those ones frustrate me because like, I didn't like school and I didn't like that aspect of, of trigonometry and calculus and all that. So it's like, when I do these podcasts, I want to talk about a little bit of woo woo, a little bit of magic. <laughs> Don't make me get out my TI 85 calculator and start doing graph problems. Yeah. It, it gives me PTSD. Yeah, it does. It does give me PTSD too. So, but, but you can see here that the, the region of abstract thought and the region of concrete thought, this is sort of like the world of thought forms. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. And then these are these different 
regions. So see on the left here is the actual idea, which doesn't come from you. This isn't happening in your, your mind. Oof. This idea exists outside of you. This is, this is that like Oof. reflective ether. And this is the Akashic record, right? This is the yeah. book that you're about to check out from the Akashic library. And then right here in the middle of the mind, this is kind of this neutral zone. So there's right down this middle of this like fourth region in this, this um, concept of thought, there's this constant battle that he describes about repulsion, like rejection and acceptance or like positive and negative. So you might, you might be coming across countless ideas constantly out in the world without even knowing it. And in certain aspects, your mind determines I'm going to latch onto that idea and I'm going to, I'm going to bring it to reality. So for this example of like, I'm going to build a boat, right? The idea floats out there. It gets into your mind. You, you decide to give it focus it turns into a thought form, which is now it's like actually in your mind. You've mm -hmm. taken it from the outside world into your kind of inner world. And then you use desire to, to bring that into the physical world. Mm -hmm. So that's why it starts as an idea. It turns into a concrete thought, like I'm going to do this thing. Then your desire to make that thing a reality is what brings it into this physical world. And so that... almost every single creative endeavor goes through this. And that is what these occultists ha are trying to do, but they're trying to skip steps, right? They're trying to avoid all these other steps and everything else. And I've talked about it, right? I mean, this guy's hitting on a lot of these topics that I've, I, mean, I didn't make them up, but this idea of manifestation, it's in your mind, it's in the ether. Are your ideas, your ideas from the get go? Because when you, when you get an idea, I mean, you know about ideas, right? Sometimes we, we, we write comics and we, we write stories and all these different things. When you come up with an idea, is it yours to begin with? Or was it divinely inspired? Or was it, again, one of the elder brothers, right? Planting their seed in your mind, right? Because he gets into that as well towards the... I think it might be like a finder's keepers uh, rule here in the <laughs> physical world, right? So like, even if it's not your idea, if you went out and found it, it's like, this is mine, you know? And then you kind of get the IP rights and you can start licensing it out to people mm. and send your goons after anyone that's trying to do the same thing. But uh, I don't, if, if that's not a rhetorical question, no, I don't think any idea is unique to the person. And this, this chart sort of backs it up, at least in the terms of this Rosicrucian work. Yeah. These ideas exist outside of us mm -hmm. and like our little ego physical bodies here. This is what you would need to actually bring that into being. Um, but yeah, like nobody owns anything that's ever existed in the material world. Wow. Yeah. And then that's y Jung's conception of concept of the collective conscious. Yeah. So and uh, if you notice this bottom part, too, this is where he tries to adapt it to like the the technology of the day so the he's got a, a stereo opticon <laughs> but yeah so you've got so the, the will is kind of like the all con you know the, the main source of god that's that's what he describes as will here so on the bottom um this is almost like at a in a projection house right like a movie theater here's your projector then you need to have the light which actually is the medium mm -hmm. which projects those colors here's the slide so like, again, like the, the picture that you're seeing on the screen, it's not coming from the screen. It's coming from a tiny little slide that's outside of your view, right? It's way above your head. It's, it's behind you in the projector booth. And then here's the lens of the actual projector. Here's the, the actual point in time when you decide that you're going to take this, uh, this slide image that doesn't exist pass it through a medium and now you're projecting it. And then finally it goes out into the screen. I like how he just kind of skips through like 
you know, the desire, the concrete uh, world of thought and the desire world. It's like, oh, there's a bunch of light rays there. Bam. Yeah. <laughs> so, so to to recap, the chemical region is the realm of form, and the etheric region is the home of the forces carrying on life activities in those forms. Okay, enabling them to live, move, and propagate. So the forces in the desire world working in the quickened dense body impel it to move in this or that direction. So we're quite literally right now breaking down the fabric of reality and why you do certain things. And it's all, again, it starts in the micro and it grows outwards into the macro to where you are now. So we're, we're made up of chemicals, right? We're a whole bunch of chemicals put together. And then there's this etheric region that's moving all everything around. Everything it, again, it's very gnostic because the gnostics assigned a different demon for every different bodily function. Uh, in the book of Enoch, you have a different angel for every part of the body that the man, that makes up man, right? And they're all working together. So we're kind of talking about the same thing, but just from a Rosicrucian lens. And the desire world is the one that impels you to move. And whatever, so it gives, it's the soul essence kind of sort of, not the ego. I mean, we get into that, but that's the way I interpret it, right? If you have no motivation, right? You're not, there's no desire. I mean, I know the name isn't exactly what it's supposed to mean, but you get what I'm saying. Come on. And so right here, if there were only the activities of the chemical and etheric regions of the physical world, there would be forms having life able to move, but with no incentive for doing so. So you, hey, and I mean, this could be some people, right? The NPC theory. Some people are probably lacking this desire world. I don't. I don't know. I mean, they're just vessels, I guess. I mean, that's kind of mean, but I think I'm. They got. They, they got too thick of a condom on. Basically. They got. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Peel back some layers, bro. Right. Take some <laughs> off. We have evolution would be an impossibility both as a form, as to form and life. For it is only in response to the requirements of spiritual growth that forms evolve to higher states. Thus, we at once see the great importance of this realm of nature. Okay. So that's an interesting dynamic, though, about Christian mysticism embracing the concept of evolution. Because he also mentions later on in chapter three that um, that in like millennia from now, or I think it's way more than millennia, but in like millions of years animals will actually evolve to have human style consciousness they won't necessarily a dog might not turn into a person you know it might not become bipedal and like lose all of its fur but that over enough time all of these even that rock at a certain point is going to gain consciousness on a long enough timeline and james here rosicrucian is not gnostic because they believe the logos was the creator hence they are christian which i mean that is a distinction that they believe that the the logos uh, to some sex was a a a force, right? The Stoics believed that the Logos was just a force, and whatever happened happened. And then the Christians or whoever else, right? They believe that the Logos was a personal connection with that thing, so it was a more personal experience. And and the Gnostics too would, I think, they typically have that aspect of the Demiurge, which is not present in in this sort of Rosicrucian yes. breakdown. They believe in they God don't... and and. They don't have that like broken filter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And Rosicrucianism, they believe that there is like this Godhead. Right. But then they also believe that there's like these entities that control reality and they don't ignore. Yeah, we're we're going to get to that. We yeah. Gotta get oh, to that. We'll get to that. So here we go. Unfortunately, our language is descriptive of material things and therefore entirely 
inadequate to describe the conditions of the super physical realms. Hence, all that is said about these realms must be taken tentatively as similes rather than actual descriptions. So it's like he's talking about how there's different descriptions for these realms, but then it's like, hey, our language, you can't even can't even comprehend these other realms and you can't even. So just take it for for whatever it's worth. And which which is a little contradictory to that opening statement where exactly. he's like, I'm going to break everything down to a layman. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, if you don't understand this, then you're not a true esoteric occultist. Like, I never said I was. I I picked up this book because you promised to explain it in layman's <laughs> terms, you know? No, but you need to read the whole thing, Thomas, before you can even critique it, bro. Right? Sure, you need no, to become an expert point. in it. You need to become an expert <laughs> in it in order to, to understand it, okay? So... The law of matter of the chemical region is inertia and the tendency to remain in status quo. It is it takes a certain amount of force to overcome this inertia and cause the body, which is at rest, to move or stop the body in motion. So, and that this is unique to the physical world. That's an important distinction. Is that that inertia and and stopping and remaining at rest or being in motion, remaining in motion, only happens in the physical world. And when you're in these other realms where it's just energy or just this you know, Cosmo, uh, astral worlds that you're constantly in motion, that they're the, all of those laws of gravity and physics and inertia no longer apply. It's only in this most dense region that, that those worlds have their own sort of sets of rules. Yeah. And then it goes, not so with the matter of the desire world, the matter itself is almost living and is, it is in an unceasing motion fluid, taking all the imaginable and unimaginable forms with inconceivable, inconceivable facility and rapidity at the same time cursicating and scintillating in a thousand ever-changing shades of color incomparable to anything we know in this physical state of consciousness and he goes that is what the desire world is ever-changing light and color in which the forces of animal and man intermingle with the forces of innumerable hierarchies of spiritual beings, which do not appear in our physical world, but are as active in the desire world as we are here. Some of them will be dealt with later and their connection with man's evolution described. So it's what you were talking about at the beginning. It's just a shit show of worlds and material just rubbing up against each other. There's this cosmic orgy, if you will, that is happening and out, you know, outside of what we can perceive and, and not perceive. So, the forces. Quick, you're in the you're in the fourth region of the desire world, and you need to move into the seventh region of the thought form world. <laughs> <laughs> How many regions do you need to? to yeah, I, this is where it started getting very algebraic. Doing. Yeah, and now again, very matter of fact, very matter of fact, and that's why I was like, eh. To arrive at a correct understanding of the desire, what is necessary to realize that this is the world of feeling, desires, and emotions. These are all under the domination of two great forces, attraction and repulsion, which act in a different way in the three denser regions of the desire world from which, from that in which they act in the three finer or upper regions, etc., etc. The central region is of feeling and the finest and rarest substance of the... Th- uh, okay. Let, let me go, rapid fire a few because yeah, go we ahead. need to get at least in the chapter two here. So he, he breaks at the very end of chapter one, he breaks down the world of thought. We went over the desire world, the chemical region, the world of thought he has as a continental region, uh, which is the lowest subdivision. This is like um, sort of uh, archetypes that are fashioned just like continents and isles of the world. Then he talks about an oceanic region where things are constantly flowing. He talks about an aerial region 
and then a region of archetypal forces. And instead of breaking every one of those down, he comes up with a, a really interesting analogy of a sponge. A sponge. So I want to end, and all the flat earthers are going to get triggered here because he <laughs> he describes it as a spherical world. But his uh, his analogy here is he's, he's basically take a round sponge. Right, you're in the world of thought, sponge. right? Uh, we're in the world of thought right now. Yeah, all right. you take you take this spherical sponge. Well, he's going to describe all of them combined now, yes. all, all together. So the the spherical sponge represents a dense earth, which you would consider the chemical region. So imagine that the sponge, right? You've got like a sand that's all inside the sponge. It's still a sponge, but it's filled with sand and all of the pores on the inside. Um, so, so all of those different layers of sand are also kind of like outside the sponge too, almost like a crust of earth. So that sand represents the etheric region, which kind of permeates the earth, although it isn't the earth. It doesn't displace the earth. It just kind of like, just kind of like the sand goes inside of the sponge. That kind of, that fills up the earth with this ether then it says you you further take that take this sponge which is covered in sand and and immerse it into a spherical glass vessel with clear water a little larger than the sponge and when you put that inside the water it's almost like a yolk going inside of an egg and you've kind of got like the the snot on the outside right the, the white of the egg and we're talking about the yolk right now so now all of that that sort of um, that clear water between the sand and the vessel, that represents the desire world. And then he keeps going above and above and keeps adding like layers around it. He also mentions this in reverse as matter comes from the high realm and falls down into the physical realm that each time it goes through a layer, it kind of gets wrapped with like another glove or another condom, as you mentioned, like a cosmic condom. So as it comes all the way down, by the time you get into the physical world, it's got all the other worlds kind of wrapped up inside of it. They're going to freak out when you said, what'd you say? Spherical, bro? Well, Heart. it's a spherical sponge. They put it in a spherical vessel. <laughs> they, they mentioned that it's inside of an egg. So there's a lot of, if you want to read into the symbolism, although I don't think we've got time for every single symbolic link here. There's so much more to, to cover here. Go, I'll read the last paragraph in a manner similar to that in which the world of life spirit correlates us to the other planets in our own solar system does the world of divine spirit correlate us to the other solar systems we may regard the solar systems as separate sponges swimming in a world of divine spirit and thus it will be apparent that in order to travel from one solar system to another it would be necessary to be able to function consciously in the highest vehicle of man the divine spirit now I'm going to say it again, very Gnostic, because the Gnostics believe that every single different celestial body and its celestial orbit was a different dimension. So again, they might be Christians, quote unquote, mystic Christians, whatever. But where did Christianity sprout from? From Gnosticism. And I mean, you, I, I, since I started out with Gnosticism because, you know, I was born and raised by a Pentecostal Christian. Not a lot of people don't know that. But the idea that I, I studied that cosmology quite in detail and I, I can see the correlations and I'm not going to get into it on this episode, but I, I'm going to be doing an episode with Mario from Symbolic Studies soon. And I'm going to talk about outer space. I know it's not. Some people think it's fake and gay, but I want to talk about it because I think it I, I think well, it serves an important role. My impression from this book is that even if you went to Saturn, then Saturn still has a physical aspect. But that means that all of those other worlds and regions also exist on Saturn, like the whole ether like it, it doesn't it doesn't only happen on the planet Earth. This happens through all of physical reality. 
so that that like these rules that he's laying out uh exist in infinite space yes. like there's not a planet you could go to that has a physical representation where this doesn't still play out mm. so chapter two the four kingdoms mineral plant animal and human kingdoms man moves grows and prop propagates his species the mineral in its native state does none of these things and he breaks down what the different kingdoms do and you, you can take over thomas and kick it into overdrive well, so, so he he does an intro here that i think's worth reading it says to function in any world and express the qualities peculiar to it we must first possess a vehicle made of its material mm. so in order to function in the dense physical world it's necessary to have a dense body adapted to that environment. Otherwise, we should be ghosts, as they are commonly called, <laughs> and be invisible to most physical beings. So we must have a vital body before we can express life, grow, or externalize the other qualities peculiar to the etheric region. And this, again, the cosmic condoms is the best example of this, as it's like falling down and getting other... He also mentions like a person putting on gloves that we'll get into. And he says that to show feeling and emotion it's necessary to have a vehicle composed of the materials of the desire world and the mind formed of the substance of the region of concrete thought is necessary to render thinking possible and this again was that delineation between like animals and plants and minerals that they don't have a vehicle that can live inside of the concrete thought world um, they just don't have the capacity I don't know if I agree with that that's just what the book was kind of spelling out as delineating, you know, all these different kingdoms of mineral, plant, animal, and man. Mm. Um, and then he also says, in addition, consequent upon the action of the third light or ether, the animal has the faculties of generating internal heat and sense perception. <laughs> um, and that's where I was like, wait a minute, there's the Eastern skunk cabbage. There's the Victoria. There's a, there's the squirting cucumber. Um, these ones all, do it generate internal heat so it kind of breaks that aspect of of his rule but he has a whole bunch of really cool stories in this chapter so instead of taking all of the algebra notes which i was kind of zoning out i really honed in on his analogies and his stories yeah do that then because i have a whole bunch i want to okay. i want to point out here the that I think it was Marsilio Ficino, which was responsible for the Neoplatonic revival during the Renaissance. They got into this this concept of, again, mind you, this was during the Renaissance, and they talked about having soul vehicles. And that's what the geometric shapes are, where you're able to ascend through different dimensions in the soul vehicle. And then they got into, like, the the ethics of it. Like, if you create a soul vehicle and once you get to heaven, like, do you take your soul vehicle with you or do you abandon it? It's like there are a whole bunch of abandoned soul vehicles in heaven. What kind of trim we talk? We talk like the touring trim or what? Yeah, like, you know, like the they got package. They got into all that, like the, 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 like how you would go about creating it, like what color was it? So there, this is an actual thing that was going on and an idea in antiquity, not just Mr. Heindel here. But again, you see where they get their ideas from, right? And uh, throughout history. So he mentions ghost limbs, which is one of my favorite topics, too, because of that Cartesian thing. But his is a little bit looser. I'll, I'll jump around a little bit. But he mentions that he explains ghost limbs as being this separate vital body that, that exists uh, independent of your physical body. So when the etheric counterpart of the amputated limb will gradually disintegrate 
as the dense member decays, but in the meantime, a man will possess that etheric limb, and that's what explains like you being able to have you know feel your fingers move around or your arm move around. It's because this etheric version of your body is still attached to you and only over a long amount of time will it go away. And he, and he goes in a little bit further. This one is where he lost me. I made a little note. It's like, you're losing me, dude. But he's got a story about the nail in the coffin. And it says, and this again, it gets into like Ripley's believe it or not land or just yes. kind of like, like a, like a funny story you'd read in like the back of a cereal box almost. But it's that there's a connection with a buried member, irrespective of distance. There's a case on record. He doesn't mention any names or dates or anything. Just there's a case on record where a man felt a severe pain as if a nail had been driven into the flesh of an amputated limb. And it persisted until the limb was exhumed when it found that a nail had been driven into it at the time it was boxed for burial. The nail was removed and the pain instantly stopped. (laughs) So at this point, and then he says, it's also in accordance (laughs) he was feeling his etheric arm it's also in accordance with these facts that people complain of pain in a limb for perhaps two to three years after an amputation the pain will then cease this is because a disease remains in the still undetached etheric limb but as the amputated part disintegrates the etheric limb follows suit and thus the pain ceases. So he's basically saying that if they chop your arm off um, and you had like pain in your arm, it's going to take as long as that arm takes to decay and just wither away and get eaten by worms Mm -hmm. for your ghost limb to go away. And that there's almost like a one-to-one correlation between the time it takes. And later on in the book, he actually advocates for cremation and not burying your dead because of this process that you don't want somebody to be trapped with their etheric you know sort of body or their etheric body parts still existing out there and it, and i think he mentions it's like a few days like you only need three or four days and then three you days cremate a body yeah but you don't want to cremate it before the three days are up because then like your etheric body doesn't get the signal or it, like you know it might be out of town on vacation and it comes back and like its house is gone uh, which we already found out you don't want. That's when like the homunculus comes and steals uh, the, the, your body and flies. You said it, not me. So, and well, I, wanna... I don't know. I, I I thought that was an interesting uh, take on also, ghost limbs and all this. I want to add you 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 skipped my favorite part. There are certain cases where the vital body partly leaves the dense body, such as when a hand goes to sleep. Then the etheric hand of the vital body may be seen hanging below the dense arm like a glove. And the point causes the peculiar pricking sensation felt when the etheric hand re-enters the dense hand. Sometimes in hypnosis, the head of the vital body div- divides and hangs outside the dense head, one half over each other, each shoulder. So he's talking about like you can see like this etheric, like they go to see, like you see their regular head, but then you see the etheric one like hanging down or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like. Whenever I'm on the toilet for a long time, my legs go to sleep. So I can just imagine like my legs are just like, (laughs) you know, like hanging out because, hey, according to Heindel, he says that it's when it exits and and you got to kind of wake it back up. Right. You start. He says it hurts. The absence of prickly sensation at awakening in cases like this is because during the hypnosis part of the hypnotist vital body had been substituted for that of the victim. Interesting. Okay, so. Uh, when anest- and then he talks about when you give somebody anesthesia, the vital body is partially driven out along with the higher vehicles 
And if the application is too strong in the life and the life ether is driven out, death ensues. So he's talking about like, yo, you give people too much anesthesia and you're driving that etheric body out of the body. And that's a, that's a no, no. And uh, well, he, he gets into that too. I mean that the quote of like sleep is the cousin of death. He doesn't mention that by name, but he, he hints at that, that when you go to sleep or when you die, the same sort of thing happens that there's this silver cord that connects you to your etheric body. And that when you sleep, it, it can get, it can get severed essentially, but it's just temporary and it comes back when you gain consciousness. But when you're dead, it gets severed and it doesn't come back, but there's ways that you can, help facilitate this little silver core there's ways you can screw up and chop it off and turn yourself into a ghost um i mean i'm, I'm oversimplifying some of that of course yeah and let's let's take this into consideration right here no genuinely developed seer will ever exercise this faculty for money or its equivalent nor will he use it oh, yeah? to how much was this curse. book <laughs> but only to help you only to help but only to help humanity thomas are you helping humanity Yes or no? Answer the question, bro. If you're helping humanity, it's okay. You can yeah. do whatever you want. So, where you at? Uh, the desire body is rooted in the liver, as the vital body is in the spleen. <laughs> and then he talks about reptilians. <laughs> so, so let me let me pull over the reptilian aspect where he says that is the very this is the very next statement after the desire body is rooted in the liver and the vital body is in the spleen. It says yeah. that. When there's vitality and motion, but no red blood, then there's no separate desire body. And again, that desire body was that like flowing of energy mm-hmm. and that like little egg shape. It almost looked like a little hairy dude floating out in space. And that the creature is simply in the transition stage from plant to animal. And therefore, it moves entirely in the strength of a group spirit. We mentioned this before. And that in cold blooded animals, which have a liver and red blood, there's a separate desire body and the group spirit Oof. directs the currents inward because in their case, there's a separate spirit of an individual fish or a reptile, for instance, that's entirely outside of the dense vehicle. So this is like this transition period where it's not just entirely this group spirit, but also like an animal might be developing its own individual spirit. And this is another thing that delineates humans from animals that humans have completely developed their own internal spirit and they no longer have a group spirit. I guess this is, you know, did I cross the two or do I I carry the one? (laughs) And then uh, this, this is an interesting question. Does this mean that Geronimo's skull and mummy still feels? Because again, we're talking about the separation of limbs Mm. and yikes. I mean, he he advocates for cremation for that exact reason. And Manly P. Hall, they said that they waited three days to cremate him because of his beliefs, supposedly. But what about those those uh, Buddhist monks that like mummify themselves? That's wild, they're just bro. screwing themselves over, and now they're they're stuck like as like a little ghost in their little trapped yeah. shell until that disintegrates. And what if they preserve it forever? Like no, like no, no. What what? Yeah, well, if you if we're following this cosmology, yeah, they would be trapped. But uh, according to that cosmology that they believe in once if, if you don't rot after the fact you did the whole thing right and you achieve nirvana or, or whatever it was and you escape some sorry and they worship you so you become a talisman so it's very interesting but yeah that's a whole nother episode and the mam the mammalia of today are on a higher plane that was man at the animal stage of his evolution because they have warm red blood which man did not have at that stage so he's going on here and then he and this, this was interesting here 
the liver also one who lives. And he's talking about like the etymology of the liver and the life of the organism, right? Because they said that the liver, what the liver filters the blood, right? Is that is that the main thing that it does? Well, he and he mentions that the liver is named because that's where the source of life yeah, comes from. Liver, so it has yeah. the word live mm -hmm. inside the liver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, wasn't where was it that they pierced Jesus with the spear of destiny? Was it on on the liver or what does it the spleen? I skipped that class. Okay. All right. Well, it was in his side. I know that. Thanks for nothing, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you for nothing. All right. So let's move on here. Well, well there's the animal consciousness aspect, which to, to drive this in, because I find this is one of the most interesting parts. And he says, we know some animals think, but those are the highest domesticated <laughs> animals, which have come close into touch with man for generations and thus have developed a faculty not possessed by other animals which have not had that advantage so he's almost describing yeah it was the spleen he's Chaney describing <laughs> that uh <laughs> that there's almost like an osmosis that happens that if you're next to a higher you know frequency being i guess or a, a higher density or low density being that that can rub off on you so that the dog that you like lick your face and sleep in your bed actually becomes closer to humanity over time because it's like you know you're rubbing that desire body off on your dog well those golden doodles look like people what if they're what if those are like people in disguise and, and the full metal alchemist when he fuses the little girl with the dog and forms I mean, the chimera dude in the, in this book it it's this is one of my favorite parts of the book but he's he's seriously without it doesn't sound like a metaphor he says that like those dogs will eventually attain the same type of consciousness as humans they'll still be able to process abstract thought forms they'll be able to take an abstract idea into the physical realm the same way that humans can and what is dog spelled backwards thomas <laughs> i also skipped that class he is on to something and i've got some stuff on that for for my next live stream so although i wanted to poke a hole in this one because we haven't i don't think we've domesticated octopus right octopi and they're capable i believe of higher thought forms like technically an octopus is about as smart as a dolphin or a dog i think yeah and they're crazy bro and they they change colors and everything and i mean they have ways of manipulating and opening jars and stuff like that well and and Oct and octopus octopi <laughs> have not been in that same sort of connection with humans as say like a domesticated yeah. dog would. So I don't know, just, just poking, yeah. just firing shots at you. Hey, it's, it's yeah. And, and this I got is because years of, uh, of, you know, hindsight on my side though. And this is because there is an each man, an individual indwelling spirit, which, in, which, which dictates the thoughts and actions of each individual human being. Well, there is one group spirit common to all different animals or plants of the same species. So, again, further in this idea. Of, well, well, I've got this in detail. I want to read the the little tidbits that I. I want to get to the snails, this. bro. Hurry up. We're get we're get dude. The snails come right after this. <laughs> yeah. So okay, so I'm gonna paraphrase some of this, but he kind of he kind of describes that all animals are the same in this group spirit concept. So all members of the same animal tribe are alike, and that's the point. Mm -hmm. A lion or its father or its son, they all look alike. There's no difference in the way they act under light conditions. They're basic I bitches. I, I don't know if I agree with that, but but this is how it's written. They all have the same likes and dislikes. One is the same as another. 
and I guess you can not you know you could ignore your family dog or your cats that have different dietary preferences because they get a pass because they've been with humans for a while right they're kind of sort of human yeah almost so then he describes not so with human beings if we want to know about oh the characteristic of a certain type of person i'm not gonna put right the word that he said there it's it's racist it's it's very racist that we examine one single individual it will be necessary (laughs) to examine each one individually and then we'll arrive at no knowledge concerning the Irish as a whole, simply because, which was a characteristic of one single single Irish individual, does not apply to the entire Irish race collectively. So just because you get robbed by one doesn't mean that they're all criminals. That's what he's trying to say. Yeah, if if just because one, you know, O'Malley is a drunkard doesn't mean every single, you know, they're all mixed. Um, But then he says, if you want to know the character of Abraham Lincoln... It would avail us nothing to study his father, his grandfather, or his son, for they would differ entirely. Each would have its own peculiarities, quite distinct from the idiosyncrasies of Abraham Lincoln. So I don't know if I agree with all of this. I think that sometimes you can kind of tell uh, where someone gets their behaviors and mannerisms and morals and stuff. But when he's talking here more on like a bigger collective thing, not just kind of um nurture versus nature he's talking at like a mm-hmm. like an etheric aspect and then this ends up with we may write the biography of a man but an animal can have no biography that's i mean you can go on amazon right now and buy biographies <laughs> of animals right now whatever this is because there is in each man an individual an indwelling spirit which dictates the thoughts and actions of each being while there is a group spirit common to all different animals or plants of the same species the group spirit works on them from the outside. The tiger which roams the wild jungle and the tiger penned up in the cage are a menagerie of both expressions of that same group spirit. And then we get to the juices Oof. of the snail. Let's do it, bro. I'm ready. My soul body, my snail body, everything, every let me, ounce. Let me whip my lips for this. Yeah, go ahead, bro. Because you're the one that found this i'll let you do it but i did highlight all of as the juices of the soft body of that snail crystallize into a hard shell which it carries on its back so the spirits in the higher worlds in a similar manner crystallize out of out of from themselves the dense material bodies of the different kingdoms these juicy snaily higher bodies so fine and cloudy as to be invisible are by no means emanations from the dense body, but the dense vehicles of all kingdoms correspond to the shell of a snail, which again is crystallized from its juices, the snail representing the spirit and the juices of the body in the, in their progress towards crystallization represent the mind, the desire body and the vital body. So it's all about snail juices that's that's his and he brings up this analogy of snail juice and crystallization multiple times three or four times throughout just the first three chapters so the the dude was big onto the snail analogy so when i saw this because i hadn't gotten to this part when you had texted me but when i saw this i immediately thought that he was talking in some sort of code Right when it came to because he kept the snail, the snail, and the spirit body. You can convince me. You can convince me of that easily. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying. Can you pull up a bit? And I wanted to add that not all, but a majority of species of 
snail are hermaphrodite. Okay, if that has anything to do with it. But the juices of its body and their progress towards crystallization representing the mind, desire body, and vital body. Wow, okay. Yeah, check out check out the juices on this one, bro. Oof, nice. Oh. Look at that juice. Right on. Yeah, dude. Look at that snail. There you go. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Juice. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, these people bro oh and so and i wanted to i don't know if i've got it ready here uh my my note with the the inner dude, look at all these freaking notes that i've got here it's it's ridiculous here we go oh, oh, oh hold on there we go this is what kept kept coming up to me when he keeps talking about a snail um this is the inner ear this guy gets it this guy gets it because and this is something that slick would point out hey thomas if you flip it upside down and you invert it and you put it on you know three to two aspect ratio it's a bad flip it and reverse it just like she said the cacao is a baphometus head flipped upside down yeah this dude gets it evil Fandango understands exactly what we're getting at. So bingo, bingo. Our work here is done, brother. And let's wrap this episode up because this guy gets it. They understood the, 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 <laughs> the assignment. Okay. So, well, we, we only just, just got to the snail shell. It, it gets weirder from here on out. It doesn't get less weird. Go ahead, bro. <laughs> Uh, okay, so th- that we got into the snail juices. It's going to come up a few other times, but we're not going to talk directly about the snails. I want to talk about animals that can talk to spirits. And this is when I, one of my favorite things that come up with where I, like, I don't really believe in spirits and woo-woo, but the concept that they've got those cats and those dogs in the mm-hmm. retirement homes that'll go up and like That's sit wild. in front of someone's bed and like, you're going to die in three days. You know what I mean? Like, what do they know? Do they just hear that they're breathing weird? Or is there like this etheric weird, like ghost presence that they're connecting that we don't? Yeah, there we go. As soon as, as soon as you see that, right, you're in the nursing home. As soon as you see that one dog, like stand in front of your door, you're just like, well, that's where I started. But then it turns into like Mr. Ed or like the little squirrels that can do arithmetic or the birds that can ride the little bikes. Because he talks about in a rare case when it happens, the etheric head of a horse can draw into the head of a dense body. And that horse can learn to read, count and work examples Bro, in arithmetic. That blew my mind when I read. I was like, what the fuck is this guy saying? <laughs> but that's like, true. I mean, you, the th- there are horses that can do this. I don't know if it's necessarily they're doing real arithmetic or if they just know to hit these certain things in a certain order. Um, but he says that this peculiarity is also due to the fact that horses, dogs, cats, and other domestic animals sense the desire world, though not always realizing the difference between it and the physical world. And that's where I was like, is that how those dogs and cats are Oof. letting you know that, that Grammy's going to die? Is because they actually can see the desire body of grammy coming and going or maybe they see that silver cord get snipped and it's like they they recognize that pattern as something is going to change and it's not because 
they have some extra sense but it's it's more like that spirit world or that desire world is merging in with the physical world and they can't tell the difference between the two so i don't know it's, it's a it's a interesting aspect of all of this you ever seen spirited away bro Oh, of course. Yeah, it's one, yeah. of, it's one of the only anime movies that I, I really like. One of my favorite movies. I've seen that movie so many times. He goes, a horse will shy at the sight of a figure invisible to the driver. A cat will go through the motions of rubbing itself against invisible legs. The cat sees ghosts. Matter of fact. This is very matter <laughs> however, of fact, by the way. However, He's without real- questions here. <laughs> however, without realizing that it has no dense legs available for frictional purposes. I can think of a few things that I use for frictional purposes as well. All right, Thomas. The dog, wiser than the cat or horse, will often sense there's something he does not understand about the appearance of a dead master whose hand it cannot lick. It'll howl mournfully and slink into a corner with a tail between its legs. So this, again, I think there's a lot of aspects in this book where the dude takes common sort of like, you know, oddities in the world and he tries to fit it all into this book and give explanations for everything. So it's like he just described... Mr. Ed and the little birds that ride the bikes, you know, like that's how they do arithmetic. He just described how animals can sense when someone's going to pass into the spirit world. He mentions that maybe he had a cat and he's like, how come this cat's always rubbing up on stuff and acting weird? I know he's rubbing up on a desire body that we can't see in the physical realm. It's like, okay, cats off the list. You know, he's like going down this checklist of all these unexplained phenomenon and it all just kind of fits into this worldview. Um, so here's, here's another one. This is the fingers in the curtain story. And I actually really liked this one. It's it's a little bit clunky, but it, I think he makes his point. So he says, imagine a room divided by a curtain. And I immediately think of like the secret Mormon room where they do the little handshake and you go up in the, the Mormon religion. <laughs> but you're in a room divided by a curtain. On one side of the curtain represents the desire world and the other is the physical world. There's two men in the room, one in each division. They can't see each other, nor can they get into the same division. There are, however, ten holes in the curtain. So the man who is in the desire world puts his ten fingers through these holes, representing the physical world. He now furnishes a representation of the group spirit, which is in the desire world. The fingers represent the animals belonging to one species. So my fingers here are like different lions that are out in the jungle. He can move them as he wills, but he cannot use them as freely nor as intelligently as the man who's walking about in the physical division using his body. The man in the physical world sees these fingers thrust through the curtain, and he observes that they all move, but he doesn't see the connection between them. To him, it appears as though they're all separate and distinct from one another. He can't see that the fingers of the man behind the veil are all governed by the movements of his intelligence. If he hurts one finger... If he, if he hurts one finger, it's not just that finger that he hurt, but the man on the other side of the curtain. Just like if an animal is hurt, it suffers, but not to the degree that the group spirit does. The finger has no individualized consciousness. It moves as the man dictates. So as animals move as the group spirit dictates. Mm-hmm. So it's basically saying like, you know, if you were to chop off this finger, you you hurt me way more than you hurt the individual finger and that kind of premise. And that's mm-hmm. how he's describing this group spirit versus an individual spirit. Mm-hmm. So all dogs go to heaven. 
and yeah, and, and sticking fingers through a curtain, or the other thing that Mormons stick through holes and sheets too. Right, the cosmic glory hole of reality. You got to remember, That's don't right. stick your etheric dick in it. It all comes back to cosmic glory. <laughs> don't be sticking your etheric anything in anything that you don't know about. So, let's see here. Where are you at? What that was? You want to talk Dude, about the? We can start rapid firing here. So we've got music. And I, I pointed this one out. For any musician, this is going to be like your favorite quote ever. So he says that music is the language of heaven, the spirit's true home, and it comes the divine spark imprisoned in flesh as a message read from its native land. Music appeals to all, regardless of race, creed, or otherworldly distinction. The higher and more spiritual the individual, the plainer does it speak to him. Even the savage beast is not unmoved by it. Um, and this here we get into the the cosmic gloves and condoms. Imagine a master musician putting on thin gloves to play his violin. We note that now his delicate touch is a little less subtle, and the soul of the music is gone. If he puts on a heavier pair of gloves over the first pair, now his hand is hampered to such an extent that he might occasionally create discord instead of harmony. Should he put another pair of gloves on in addition to the two pairs that he already had on? A pair heavier than mittens, he would temporarily be unable to play. And one who had not heard him play previously, um, but before he put those mittens on, would naturally think that he had never been able to do so, especially if ignorant of the hampering of his hands. So it is with the spirit. Every step down, every descent into coarser matter is like putting on a pair of gloves would be to that musician. Every step down limits its power of expression until it's become so accustomed to its own limitations that it finds a focus in the same way that the eye must find a focus after we enter a house on a bright summer day and the pupil of the eye contracts to its own limit in the glare of the sun. And as the pupil expands and admits more light, the man is then enabled to see well in the dimmer light in the house as he did in the sunlight. So I, this is my favorite analogy of like this, this violinist or maybe like a surgeon or something, right? Like a surgeon with those thin gloves so he can feel and know exactly what he's doing. But if you put some like leather work gloves on that dude, you know what I mean? Like all of that precision is gone. All of that, that instant feedback that you get from the haptic, you know, just like feelings in your fingers, it all goes away. Mm -hmm. So this would be like, you know, putting four or five condoms on essentially. <laughs> and do, and, and we we're joking about the condom analogy, but it comes up again later in, in my absolute favorite aspect of this. I'll, I'll leave it till the end, but that when you relive your life after you die, you relive it without your physical body so that as you go back through, you re-experience all the pleasure and pain of your life, but that you're doing it without all those condoms on. You don't have gloves on. So when you go back and relive all of your experiences, you're reliving them at like 10 or 100 times mm -hmm. the intensity because you don't have, you know, you don't have the seven condoms on. You, like you, you feel it to the skin. One man's meat is another man's poison. I just wanted to say that. And then, did you catch that? <laughs> he says that here, bro. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, I thought that was another. <laughs> no, one man's give, meat. Give this respect it deserves. No, no. He says that, that all oxen thrive on grass and all lions eat flesh, while one man's meat is another man's poison is another That's illustration of the That's all also incorrect, by the way. There, there are definitely animals that have allergies that can't eat the same food as. It's other another illustration of the all-inclusive influence of the group spirit, as contrasted with the ego, which makes each human being require a different portion of food from every. Other. And then we have here, 
Did you catch that, that last part? The animal, which is symbolized by the horizontal limb of the cross, is between the plant and the man. Its spine is in a horizontal position, and through it play the currents of the animal group spirit, which encircles the earth. No animal can be made to remain constantly upright because in the case that the current of the group spirit could not guide it, and if it were not sufficiently individualized to endure the spiritual currents which enter the vertical human spine. So it's like talking about why, why their larynx can't be upright. It's because it's that was that was interesting cross. to me because there there are bipedal animals, but yes. most bipedal animals do not walk upright constantly the same way that humans do. And if you believe in evolutionary science, whatever, it looks like humans were originally to be on all fours, and the fact that we stand upright is one of the things that hurts us so bad. It's what destroys your knees and your back and gives you neck problems. Um, but of course, if you were on all fours too, you'd probably you'd probably like destroy your hands and your knees too so damned if you do damned if you don't but but it's interesting in this this analogy where it's another delineation between humanity and animals that the human forms a cross which kind of goes into the christian mysticism a little bit more yes so let's get to chapter three here one that 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 section ends on in time the animal will become human and have liberty of choice and will make at? mistakes and learn by them. That's right after they talk about the oxen thrives on grass. And oh, lions yeah, eat flesh. Yeah, yeah. It ends with in time, the animal will become human. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is a metaphorical, like the spirit evolves and they eventually get I think so. to process the same thought forms or if literally an animal eventually becomes a human. I think, what if what if Bigfoot is like in between animal and the human spirit, right? Like the human realm or whatever it is in evolution. He's just like in between. He's like both at the same time. And that's why we see him the way that we see him. Again, I mean, that makes sense to me. And if you if for those that want to believe in evolution and those that don't, I mean, that right, there's that little graph where it's like little and then it gets bigger. Right. The monkeys and all that stuff. So, I mean, it makes sense to me. All right, chat, let's let's do chapter three. Go ahead. This is the long one. Yep. Have at it, Thomas. Go, bitch. Have at it. So uh, I'm going to go right into what he calls, oh, here, thought form programming. He says, where no immediate action is called for by mental images of impacts from without, these can be projected directly on the reflecting ether. That's I think that's the part where an idea that's out in the the etheric realm it goes through this reflecting ether and that's the medium in which you even take notice of this idea that then brings it into your head so the spirit working through the mind has instant access to the storehouse of conscious memory i think this is the akashic records so your spirit has like the library card that can get you into the akashic records and that it may at any time resurrect any picture found there and do them with enough spiritual force and project them upon the desire body to compel action. So it's almost like you, you're just like constantly seeking out something that might be out there. And if you hone on to something that your spirit thinks is worthy, then it passes it off to your desire body. And the desire body decides whether or not you want to give that thing focus or not. And if you do want to give it focus, then it becomes a thought form. And then you can decide to use your desire to create that thought form and bring it into reality. And he says, each time such a picture is thus used, it gains vividness, strength, and efficiency, and will compel action along its particular line more readily than previous actions, because it cuts grooves and produces a phenomenon of thought 
gaining or growing upon us by repetition. And you know what else um, grows in vividness, strength, and efficiency by repetition? This sounds like magical. Well, okay, thank you. But he's describing kind of like magical ritual at this point, Mm -hmm. no? Like when you repeat the same process in the same place with the same intent, it theoretically gets stronger each time that that happens. Even if you've never done it before, if you go to a place that's charged and you repeat the same sort of ritual, you're in theory kind of like leveraging all the previous rituals that happened Mm -hmm. in that spot and so on and so on, you know, if you believe in the woo-woo part. But this is the, the, you know, Christian mysticism, Rosicrucian version of that. But it's saying that like these Akashic records out there, it's like if I check out the boat book, you know, from the Akashic records, there's a better chance that someone else is going to check it out afterwards. And that might kind of explain how like these new ideas and this new technology comes in the being. And then all of a sudden it just starts rapidly growing and a bunch of people start having that idea over and over. I don't remember exactly who said it, but I've said I've seen some really cool interviews where people mentioned that like the first guy that invented the wheel or the semiconductor or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. If he hadn't done it, another person would have done it like that same year or within the same amount of time, because it was like that idea was ready to be manifested into the world. It wasn't Mm -hmm. waiting on a person to find it. It was just like the first person that connected with it. It was time for that idea. So I I don't know. I I think this fits in nicely, almost like a glove. Yeah, and, and it would make sense that against controversial, but the idea that all these gods that we've known are propped up by this ideology of it being sent back over, and that's how they're being kept alive. And I read this book where it's talking about how initiation and subtle energy works like this because they're feeding off of the devotees of that religion. And I've always said that every religion kind of sort of has like their own energy pools that they're able to tap into. And that's, what's keeping their egregores or their people alive. Right. So, I mean, it's going to make some people feel some type of way, but where you are right now, you can feel any way you want, man. You can feel any well, way so you the, want. He brings up the 21 grams experiment. If, if you're interested in the 21 grams experiment, just look it up on, on your own. I think, but he gives a lot of credit to it and he cites it as proof that this different etheric body exists. Um, Although he doesn't attribute the 21 grams exactly to the spirit because he kind of gives this credence to like the spirit realm has the physical body and the, and the Mm -hmm. physical vehicle and all that belongs by itself. And the spirit doesn't necessarily interact the same way, but that the difference does matter. Although um, there's an example that like a few years after that big claim came out and this guy latched onto it, a professor Lavi Twining, he basically repeated the 21 grams experiment, but he put animals inside of flasks and killed mm-hmm. them. He was a great guy. And then saw that while the animal lost the weight, it was mostly condensation through sweat and through like, you know, discharge. But if you captured all that in a flask, then the weight didn't change. So it was actually like a disproof, but this mm. book cites that guy too as further proof, but it doesn't seem like in reality that he was backing that. He was, it seems like he was disproving that. And then he goes, there was no difference though. One of the animals was a St. Bernard dog. So I guess St. Bernard dogs don't change in weight when they die. I don't know why, but. So here, here's the part about cremation being good. Mm-hmm. He mentions 
the silver cord is a very uh, complicated uh, aspect of all this, but just know that there's this silver cord that connects your physical body to your your ethereal body. Um, so he mentions that the silver cord breaks at a point and the same division is made during sleep. But the important difference is that through the vital body, or sorry, though the vital body returns to the dense body, it no longer penetrates it, but simply hovers over it. And I think this is explaining that concept of like out of body experiences where people will say that they woke up or they were in a hospital room and they're looking down at their body or they're outside their body. I think it, it leans towards that. And he says that, Hence, um, uh, it simply hovers over it. The remains floating over the grave, for example, decaying synchronously with a dense vehicle. So now you're talking about like a ghost that's latched on to the body that's buried under a grave. And he says that hence to the trained clairvoyant, a graveyard is a nauseating sight. And if only more people could see it, um, a little argument would be necessary to induce them to change their present unsanitary method of disposing the den the dead to a more rational method of cremation which restores the elements to their primordial condition without objectionable features incident to the process of slow decay this is again like don't let your body rot away for weeks or months or years because that means that your your sort of ethereal body is going to be stuck and attached to it and then if you do the cremation then it it purifies it quicker so what are your that would would that be a reason why there are hauntings like residual like they they talk about residual hauntings in certain places and stuff like that because it would be like if there's a, a battlefield of people that died in that area they're kind of stored as still lingering around because of this silver cord type of thing right part of part of that also he, he mentions that not all people know that they're dead so th this Oof. is a, a seed analogy so, yeah real um, quick though this guy was a former pentecostal minister and a lot of were, people don't know. Were you that Pentecostal? I, I, a lot of people don't know, but I was at, yeah, I was actually uh, born and raised Pentecostal Christian, so I just want to put that out. <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna, I want to jump to two different stories. He's got a story of a gold hoarder and a story of a drunkard, and they have sort of the, the same drunkard is my favorite concept. So okay, <laughs> let me start with the the hoarder, and you do the drunkard, okay? All right. So there's a there was a miser who loved his gold and earth, um, loves it just as dearly after death. But in the first place, he cannot acquire anymore because he no longer has a dense body to grasp it. And worst of all, he can't even keep what he hoarded during his life. He will perhaps go and sit by his safe and watch his cherished gold or bonds. But the heirs appear and with a stinging jeer at the stingy old fool who they do not see, um, but he sees and hears them, will open his safe. And as though he may throw himself over his gold to protect it, They'll put their hands through him, neither knowing nor Ugh. caring that he's there, and will then proceed to spend his hoard while he suffers in sorrow and impotent rage. <laughs> so this is like, if you're attached to material possessions, even after you die, that attachment can keep you right there, like just fast, you know, being infatuated over your material possessions still. And then people come in and they take it away. Like, imagine when the family comes into grandma's house after she passes away and like, you know, all of the, the brothers and sisters are arguing over who gets the flat screen TV or who's going to get the couch. And, but like, you know, Grammy's there like, no, don't take my TV. I need that. Um, I mean, obviously they're talking about a gold hoarder, which is like a very specific type. So yeah, do, do the drunkard. Or take the case of the drunkard. He is just as fond of intoxicants after death as he was before is my favorite part here. It is not the dense body that craves drink. 
It is made sick by alcohol and would rather be without it. It vainly protests in different ways, but the desire body of the drunkard craves the drink and forces the dense body to take it. That the desire body may have, have the sensation of pleasure resulting from the increased vibration. The desire, that desire remains after the death of the dense body, but the drunkard has in his desire body neither mouth to drink, not stomach to contain physical liquor. He may and does get into saloons where he in, interpolates his body into the bodies of drinkers to get a little of their vibrations by induction. But that is too weak to give him much satisfaction. He may I love this. Well, and I have something on this. He may and also does sometimes get inside a whiskey cask, but that is of no avail either for there are in the cask no such fumes that as are generated in the digestive organs of a tip tippler. It has no effect upon him, and he is like a man in an open boat on the ocean. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Consequently, he suffers intensely. In time, however, he learns that the uselessness of longing for drink, which he cannot obtain. As with so many of our desires in the earth life, all desires in the desire world die for want of opportunity to gratify them. When the drunkard has been purged, he is ready, so far as this habit is concerned to leave this state of purgatory and ascend into the heaven world. And if you think about this, right, he's talking about how this spirit will enter other bodies of drunk people. Well, if you think about bar, right, it means Sumerian and Sumerian means altar and you drink wine and spirits at bars. And I've heard people talk about how people get possessed when they drink. And he's talking about this right here. He's talking about the possession of people when they're drinking. Right, that's wild. He, he goes into that a little bit more too, and he explains that like some people will get into these fits of anger or rage, and that that anger or rage actually could be, uh, again, the, the the homunculus that we talked about in the Cartesian voyage. That if you leave your body too long, if you take the DMT and you trip out in outer space, if you're gone too long, then a homunculus, an astral homunculus, can come and take over your body. You said it. And not it me. knows how to make you act. So other people might see you acting really strange, but it's not your consciousness that's acting strange. Homunculus it's like a confirmed. Homunculus. Certified mother <laughs> homunculus. Good God. That's a homunculus. I didn't say it. You fucking said it, Thomas. Okay. Technically, that was AI that was just talking. Well, yeah. Anyways, you brought up the homunculus concept because this also relates to kind of sort of what we were talking about in the voyage of Car to the world of Cartesius. So again... Very, so this very is that spirit. So, if, if you're in a bar and you start acting like you're not yourself, that could have been a desire body that, that jumped into your body just because it wanted to feel what getting drunk was like. And honestly, this could be a whole topic that we could go on a crazy tangent because, yeah, alcohol makes you want to. Oh, I don't know if that's Coca Cola, of, co we're of course, about. right? <laughs> but, but there could be an interesting conversation here that people that are under the like a strong addiction to a certain drug or chasing the dragon or they got that monkey on their back that might be in in the context of this uh cosmo cosmology rosicrucian book but addictions might actually be another desire body that's like latched itself Listen. onto you that's like go get more drugs because it's the thing that wants the drugs and not you Real quick, everybody in the chat, make sure to sign up for the Kickstarter. But what you're talking about, Thomas, is in that movie Homunculus on Netflix. Everyone's traumas 
and deepest, darkest secrets manifests itself as a homunculus on the person, bro. So, again, it's an interesting concept that there are these little gremlins of reality or these entities, right, that are able to not only... They can interact with us. And when our body... He, he does say during sleep, we step outside of our body, right? And they're able to step in it. In our body... He, I know he said that somewhere in here, but... It's it's when that cord is disconnected, then your body is almost open rain. Like like something else could come in and attach it. Because, again, it's, it's no longer in your body. It's hovering above it. So something can slip in while it's hovering. Interesting. Okay. So... It, so we're going to get into my, my absolute favorite out of all three of these chapters. This is the part that I'm going to, I'm going to be bringing this up constantly. So get ready for it. Oh yeah. So he's, this is desire world time. And he says that in the desire world, life is lived at three times the speed as in the physical world. Very matter of fact, very specific. A man who has lived to be 50 years of age in the physical world would live back through the same life events in the desire world in about 16 years. This is, of course, only a general gauge. There are persons who remain in the desire world much longer than their term of physical life, and others, again, who have led lives with few desires pass through in a much shorter period. But the measure above given is very nearly correct for the average man of present day. I want to know where the numbers came from, where's the spreadsheets, but <laughs> Source, whatever. Trust me. He bro. says, during his life in the desire world, all of these life pictures roll backwards as before, but now the man has all the feeling that is possible for him to have one by one as the scenes pass before him. Every incident in his past life is lived over again. When he comes to a point where he has injured somebody, he himself feels that pain as if the injured person felt it. He lives through all the sorrow and suffering he has caused to others, and he learns just how painful the hurt is and how hard to bear the sorrow he has caused. In addition, there's a fact already mentioned that this suffering is much keener because he has no dense body to dull the pain. Perhaps that's why the speed of life is tripled, that the suffering may lose in duration what it gains in sharpness. Nature's measures are wonderfully just as true. So this one blew my mind because first he's talking about Benjamin Button style, like reliving your, like after you die, you relive everything in reverse order. And this is almost like when you go to the, the gates, right? And they, and you put your life up on judgment and God tells you, here's all the things that you did good and bad. This is a way more natural automatic process no one's gonna sit here and say like you did these naughty things you're gonna have to relive all of those for yourself and that if you hurt someone emotionally or physically you feel their pain and in addition to you feeling that pain you don't get to feel it with all those gloves on all those cosmic condoms on now you have to go back and feel it without mm -hmm. any protection and the, and the reason why i thought this was so cool is because we think of like pleasure and pain as a side effect of having a physical body but he's he's kind of reinterpreting it as that no if anything your physical body is dulling pain pain and pleasure and that if you can feel it without your physical body attached that you feel it you know he doesn't say exactly how much but it sounds like it you know his his quote is that um what it what it loses in duration it gains in sharpness so the fact that you're reliving your life at three times the speed maybe you're like refeeling pleasure and pain at three times the amount who knows and there's a way to to 
to lessen this, right? He talks about it. Is this what? Yeah, he's... dude. So this was the coolest part I found in the occult anatomy of man that we covered on occultbookclub.com previous issue. But they mentioned that there's a Rosencrucian technique, and in that book, they don't talk about oh. why you do this, but that at the end of each day, you relive everything that you did in reverse order. Um, so when Manly, I think it was Manly Palmer Hall that mentioned that as a Rosicrucian technique. But I mean, he, he was, was inspired by it. Heindel, so it makes sense. He was inspired by Heindel, but the way he described that was almost like it was like a life hack, you know, to like get to put yourself on the straight and narrow and to just be more conscious about things. But the way that this Rosicrucian book is describing it is that by reliving every day from the last thing that happened to the first thing, you're actually practicing. You're like in training. You know, you're doing all of the calisthenics to prepare yourself for when you die and have to go through this purgatory. Mm-hmm. Now you're you're trained yourself to live in reverse and not just that. But if if you go through the events of the day, you're supposed to think, oh, this this thing that I said to this person or I interacted with, you know, a family member. Did that make them feel good or bad? And if you're conscious about that, you might start actively trying to like treat people better or just not cause any suffering or pain. And just by being conscious of that and practicing on how to live backwards, by the time you get to this sense of purgatory, <laughs> you have to relive this desire world, you can kind of skip through it because you've been studying your whole life. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, then now we have the, and I've also heard it called the Pythagorean recollection method too. I've also heard it every, every day at the oh, end of... Reliving your day in reverse? Yes, and analyzing it and doing it. I've done it, so I mean... If it works to help you avoid purgatory in some sort of way, and you're able to pass the first heaven directly after death, if you're able to <laughs> master this, I guess. And what do you, are you gonna talk about the borderland? You have another one there? I didn't I didn't pick up on the borderland. Yeah, I don't have anything on it either. We have the first heaven. And what else do you have on here? I got I children f- before 14 years. There's there's a class who lead a particularly beautiful life, the children. If we could but see them, we would quickly cease our grief. I, again, I've met some pretty shitty 14-year-olds <laughs> uh, in modern times. Maybe in 1909, like every 14-year-old was just, you know, uh, peaceful as pie. But he says that... Um, My five-year-old is a, a child... fucking asshole, so yeah. it's completely <laughs> yeah. off. <laughs> When a child dies before the birth of the desire body, which again is at age 14, um, it does not go any higher than the first heaven because it's not responsible for its actions any more than an unborn child is responsible for the pain it causes the mother by turning and twisting in the womb. Therefore, a child has no purgatorial existence. That which is not quickened cannot die. Hence, the desire body of the child, together with the mind, will persist until a new birth. And for that reason, children are very apt to remember their previous life as instance elsewhere. So they're mentioning that like, if you die before you turn 14, then you actually get to take a little bit of, I guess, your knowledge and your experience onto the next body because it doesn't have to go through the entire cycle and go back through all of purgatory again. You get to just get to jump into the next body that's available, I guess. Interesting. And then I have here... He goes on to say uh, where he's talking about Pythagoras. Did you catch that part? Oh, yeah. We have Pythagoras was not romancing when he spoke of the music of the spheres for each one of the heavenly orbs has its definite tone and together they sound the celestial symphony, which goeth 
Also mentioned the prologue to his Faust, where the scene is laid in heaven. And then he goes on to say what he said. But he talks about the experience of the poet are akin to those of the musician for poetry is the soul's expressions of the innermost feeling in the world, which are ordered according to the same laws of harmony and rhythm that govern the outpouring of the spirit in music. And there was a part that I wanted to talk about because it talks about something that I've touched on. And here we go. We got more snail stuff. Do you have anything before that? Because we have more snail stuff after this. No, I'm, I'm on the snail. All right. So the occult, all right, as stated above, the forces of the seed atom are withdrawn to the materials force and matter are inseparable. The occultist knows, right? They all know differently to him. They are not two entirely distinct and separate concepts, but two poles of one spirit. Matter is crystallized spirit. Force is the same spirit not yet crystallized. Now we get back into the snail. This has been said before, but it cannot be too strongly impressed upon the mind. In this connection, the illustration of the snail is very helpful. Matter, which is crystallized spirit, corresponds to the snail's house, which is crystallized snail. The chemical force which moves matter, making it available for the building of form and the snail which moves its house are also good correspondences. That which is now the snail will in time become the house and that which is now force will in time become matter when it has crystallized further. The reverse process of resolving matter into spirit is also going on continually. The coarser phase of this process we see as decay when a man is leaving his vehicles behind and at the time the spirit of an atom is easily detachable from the coarser spirit. So, this to me screams what the Taoists were doing with the golden little man, where they were able to crystallize this spirit, this force, this what they called the homunculus. Yeah, homunculus confirmed, certified mother homunculus. <sighs> and he's talking about the snail, so we're gonna have to talk about snails from now on, right? The occult snail, the cosmic snail. Right? I'm not as sold on the snail analogy as this dude was. I just want to say that out loud. I think it's cool, bro. And then I think it's cool, but I don't think it it's as strong of an analogy as he mentioned because the slime of a snail is chemical. It is physical and it's just turning into it's just calcifying, right? Just turning into a harder <laughs> substance. So it's like the snail, we're not talking about the snail has a spirit that then turns into physical form, but I, I understand that the analogy can only be so good. Evil Findango gets it, bro. He understands this shit. So <laughs> The second heaven, and this part stood out to me because I recently had on Stacy Brown Jr. and they did a an experiment, a version of the gateway experiment at the Conjuring House, okay, where they put on these headphones and they were able because he talked about Pythagoras and the music of the spheres. Well, Stacy Brown Jr. talked to me about how when they were doing this seance or this experiment at the Conjuring House, which, again, could be a portal to another dimension if you believe in spirits and, and demons and ghosts and stuff. But he was able to enter this, what he called, I forgot what he called it, but the absolute. And he said that it felt great and that it was this place where it felt like nothing could ever happen to you. And it was just this empty, desolate area, but you felt safe. And he talks about here in occult science, this is called the great silence or the great forever of standing utterly alone, yet unafraid 
and his soul is filled with a wonderful peace, which patheth all understanding. And that's what he was talking about when he explained that to me. He felt that he had traveled through time or space or whatever it is to this great beyond. And it makes me think of Full Metal Alchemist when he speaks to truth. And it's like in this other realm in front of the gates. And obviously that's very Kabbalistic because it, it has to do with the with the tree of life. But I've been studying Kenneth Grant and one of the aspects of one of the Sephiroths, I believe it is one of these other dimensions, is that there is a dimension where time travels backwards. Now, I was not going to I'm not going to drop what I'm saving for another episode with Mario from Symbolic Studies, but it has to do with this concept of going back in time, going back in time and the crossing of the abyss and why occultists were obsessed with that. I'm going to leave it at that. But yeah, this part stood out to me because I had just done that episode of the uh, here. The first awakening brings to the spirit, the sound of the music, of the spheres. And again, you know, it's this other place where he felt safe. It was empty and desolate, but he was unafraid of it. Know anything on that? Well, after the silence, he starts talking about vibrations. I, I kind of like he's got like a little segue here. I don't know if it was intentional, but he talks about the great silence and how this part rubbed me a little bit wrong because before he was talking about being very clear, very matter of fact and like layman terms. But then he says, in our earth life, we are so immersed in little noises and sounds in our limited environment that we're incapable of hearing the music of the marching orbs but the occult scientist hears it. This is kind of like, explain this more, my dude, but he doesn't. And he says, he knows, the occultist, that the 12 signs of the Zodiac and the seven planets are a sounding board and the strings of Apollo's seven-stringed lyre. He knows that were a single discord to mar the celestial harmony from the grand instrument, there'd be a wreck of matter and a crash of worlds. And when I read that, I was like, what happened to that promise? When you were like, all this is going to make sense. We're going to break it all down. And now we're absolutely talking in metaphors and like, you know, symbolic language here. We've, we've departed the world of layman's terms. But then he, he goes on to some, uh, some woo-woo stuff that I think that everyone likes. The power of rhythmic vibration is well known to all who have given the subject even the least study. For example, soldiers are commanded to break step when crossing a bridge. Otherwise, their rhythmic tramp would shatter the strongest structure. And this is actually true. This is a, a very real um, aspect in the military that when you come up to a bridge, everyone kind of like breaks up their marching pattern because there have been real examples in history when, you know, soldiers brought a bridge down and people got hurt because of this. And he says that the Bible story of sounding the ram's horn while marching around the walls of Jericho is not nonsensical in the eyes of the occultist in some cases similar things have happened without the world smiling um and he kind of mentioned this thing that previously this has happened and people didn't laugh about it but now if you bring up the fact that vibrations i guess in 1909 have all this extra power people would kind of sneer a little bit and he's and so here's where he's got a just a random trust me bro anecdote but i gotta mention it he said this is called the castle wall story a few years ago, what year? 1900? Whatever. A few years ago, a band of musicians were practicing in a garden close to the wall of an old castle. There occurred a single place in the music, a prolonged and very piercing note. When this note was sounded, 
the wall of the castle fell. The musicians had struck the keynote of the wall, and it was sufficiently prolonged to shatter it. Again, no names, no dates, no places, just the trust me bro story. Um, but, I mean, it it fits with the story of the bridge. It fits with the, the fall of Jericho. And it's just like a little anecdotal version of that same thing. I, I thought of like Coral Castle where the dude was like levitating stuff through the power of vibration. So vi vibration was a, a huge buzzword around the early 20th century for sure. All about the sneeze. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this opportunity to go into my next favorite part where he talked. He, he relates vibrations to being both color and music. And he says that there's a world of tone which cannot be thought as if there's no colors. So everyone knows that there's an intimate connection between color and tone because when a certain tone is struck, a certain color can appear simultaneously. He's talking about synesthesia here where some people can like, you know, hear a note and see a color and there's different types of synesthesia. And I went on a whole rabbit hole of synesthesia here. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I even came up there. There's one called number form, which I didn't even know about. This one blew my mind. But number form is a is a version of synesthesia, but it's when someone is describing um, mathematical patterns or just like some kind of a timeline. Some people will literally see real numbers kind of like spread out in front of them. It's like that the meme with uh, Zach Galifianakis where it's like doing math in space and there's all these like formulas. There's some people that actually have this very real phenomenon where they see numbers right in front of them without having to think about it. It just happens. And they can just kind of communicate. I wonder if this was what like Tesla had or something. You obviously don't listen to the one on one podcast or else you would have heard about that shit like a year ago when I talked about it. So, <laughs> well, well, this this came from a book called Visions of Sane Persons by Sir Francis Galton. Um, and I don't know if you covered that particular book, Visions of Sane Persons. I did. Yes. Not, not. Yes, I did, bro. I did a whole presentation on Emily Moore's show about it, bro. So. <laughs> Eat a bag of dog well, I, I thought that was fascinating. I didn't realize that that was part of uh, synesthesia, but I guess it is. Yeah, because it makes you think of why the in the Matrix, it's green, right? I mean, it's it's the idea of again it had to do with the Pythagorean palaces and how Marsilio Ficino talked about how numbers quite literally like pro have sex with each other and multiply reality into existence. But you wouldn't. You wouldn't know anything about that, bro. I mean, it's all good, dude. <laughs> so here's here's another part that uh, gets into the Archons. And this is, this I think was controversial when I read it. And I don't know if I read it the same way that you did. So I wanted, this is a part where I think is interesting conversation. Happen, October 17th, 2022. <laughs> okay. Magicians, number forms, and architect. Imaginales. So I just wanted to point that out, bro. And while you're at that, go to paranoidamerican.com, click on chosen one. Patreon.com slash the one on one podcast, and you can check that episode out there. So So he, he mentions the the second heaven is the real home of man, the ego and the thinker. Here he dwells for centuries, assimilating the fruit of his last earth life and preparing the earthly conditions which will best suit for his next step in progress. This and then he this is this is the part where I, I I didn't know what to think about this. It says, all the denizens of heaven work upon the models of the earth, all of which are regions of concrete thought. They alter the physical features of the earth. They bring about gradual changes that vary its appearance so that on each return to physical life, a different environment has been prepared. 
climate, flora, and fauna are all altered by man under the direction of higher beings. Thus, the world is what we make ourselves individually and collectively, and it's what we will make of it. The occult scientist sees in everything that happens a cause of spiritual nature manifesting itself. So, so that line, climate, flora, and fauna are altered by man under the direction of higher beings. To be described Does this later. mean that ghosts are doing climate change to us? <laughs> no, but in the book of Enoch, it talks about how every single angel is in charge of a certain aspect of reality. So that's what I when I as soon as I read that, that's where I that's what I interpreted when I saw that. But it, but it sounds like when you go into the physical world, at some point you return back to the heavens. Yes. So that means that me and you at one point are going to be playing Minecraft with the actual earth and we're going to be terraforming and I'm going to be like, I'm going to put a mountain over here. So when I go back down onto earth, I can like snowboard on that mountain or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it, it feels like that's what he's describing. And it's not that there's these archons that are far detached and it's like a different um, sort of class of being that we'll never get to be like me and you will literally become those archons that start terraforming the earth. And we're, we're doing it so that we can relive that earth. But when it says that it's altered by man under the direction, it's almost, you know, I'm, I'm imagining like these big ghost arms coming down and like, you know, telling someone to start a war um, just so that that war will be a catalyst to change the landscape. So when I come back down again or, you know, start burning plastic or start drilling That's for oil divine, or whatever. That would be divine intervention. And I mean, a lot of religions were started with, a divine intervention, right? A, a prophecy or a vision from a higher entity. So religion as we th know This it. gives credit to the whole, like the fundamentalists that are trying to bring revelations, right? And they're like, mm -hmm. let's, let's drill for oil and let's, let's cause these like cataclysms. But you could almost blame it. It's like, well, I'm not doing that. Those are like the it's ghost these arms. Fucking like, demons. <laughs> yeah, these archons are making me do these this. Demons, man. Problem. They're just making me do everything. You know, I just can't admit I'm a piece of shit. But so. it's not a demon. It's grandma. Like that's like, you know what I mean? Like grandma went back. Well, they say a few centuries. So it would have to be like great, 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 great grandma or something. But, um, you know, it's, it's normal, regular entities that lived on earth at one point that are now in charge of terraforming the earth mm -hmm. just so they can return back to that earth. Mm -hmm. And I have here, the mathematician has to deal with space and the faculty for space perception is connected with the delicate adjustment of the three semicircular canals, which are situated inside the ear, each pointing in one of the three dimensions in space. Now we're back to the snail. Because if you pull up a picture of the ear canal, how we did earlier, not only does it look like Baphomet, but it also looks like a snail. So, and, and I didn't, I mean, I guess this is obvious to anyone that paid attention in school, but I didn't, but he's describing how these semicircular canals are the basis for our interpretation of three-dimensional reality, because yes. you've got one that goes vertical right here, you know? You've got another one that goes completely horizontal. So here's your Y plane and your X plane. And then you've got this other one that goes between them, which is kind of your Z plane. So here's your Cartesian coordinates mm -hmm. represented by these three different semicircular canals. And that he also mentions that your sense of hearing is the most heightened and it's the most direct sense, which correlates to where he thinks that music 
is like the highest art form because music is temporal and you can't capture it or imprison it the same way as that you can make a painting or a sculpture mm-hmm. where now it exists in reality. It's in, more in elusive. Form. It's, yeah, he, he uses that exact word, right? It's more elusive. Mm-hmm. And the music so reproduced... L- l- Losses much of the or loses much of the soul stirring sweetness it possesses when it comes fresh from its own world, carrying the soul memories of its home and speaking to it in a language that no beauty expressed in marble or upon canvas can equal. And he he's talking about here about making statues and capturing these different essences in either music or right how music is the most elusive because it comes directly from that world and how you're kind of able to do that with statues and bringing it down but not really because music is the most beautiful right it's like it's the one that you always have to reproduce i think it's worth reading in in length here so he says that among ordinary musical people the greatest degree of efficiency is about 15 sounds per fiber but a master musician who's able to interpret and bring down music from heaven requires a greater range to be able to distinguish the different notes and detect the slightest discord in even the most complicated chords. And, and this correlates to um, like, like the old ancient perfumers. I don't know if you've seen that movie perfume where the guy has like this heightened sense of smell and he can smell things that are like far away. And um, but, but essentially that's a, it's a very, real aspect where people that can smell very well have um, like a mutation with their olfactory senses that actually increases the the sensitivity well they're that same kind of aspect he's kind of describing here with your ear and being able to hear to that same level of like a perfumer and he says that um one no other rank so high as a musician which is responsible for what we consider what the painter draws chiefly from the world of color but the musician brings us to the atmosphere of our heavenly home world where spirits are citizens and to translate them into the sounds of earth life the musician is on the highest mission because a mode of expression for soul life and music reign supreme music is different and higher than all other arts that can be understood when we reflect that a statue or painting once created is permanent they draw from the desire world and are therefore more easily crystallized while music is from the heaven world it's more elusive and must be recreated each time we hear it it cannot be imprisoned as shown by unsuccessful attempts to do so <laughs> by devices such as phonographs and that part was like well now we actually have you know like very high bit rate you know 48 hertz kilohertz sampling and 24 bit music so i I guess you could still make that same argument though, that you can't capture audio and all the energy that goes into like a live musical performance the same way as that a painter or a sculptor would bring their thought form into reality because music, it's not you bringing a thought form into the physical world, except for that exact moment when that violinist is stroking that string and making it emit that one frequency, but like nothing at any point has manifested itself into the physical world outside of the vibration. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything in between that? Because I have this thing here. Thus, we see no, that that man learns to build his vehicles in heaven, in the heaven world, and use them in the physical world. And... Oh, I, you know, I thought this was like build a bear, but it's like build a body. <laughs> <laughs> like after you die, you go to like a big build a body store. And we have the third heaven, and I don't have anything until he talks about the purpose of life which is not happiness, but experience. 
And then well, well, I got I got one thing on the third heaven where he says that the ineffable harmony of the higher world is strengthened for its next dip into matter. And there comes a time for desire for a new experience and contemplation of a new birth. And this conjures up a series of pictures before the vision of the spirit, a panorama of the life in store for it. So, so this is you about to re-enter the world. And it's like, you know, here's the movie preview. Here's like the movie trailer. It's Tibetan of book the, of the, the dead life that you're about to go into. Yeah. Where you're watching so, your parents fuck and then you choose them by how your parents <laughs> are having sex. <laughs> And it says that this this panorama contains only principal events. The spirit has a free will as to the details. So if a man, it's like a man going to a distant city with a time limit ticket, an initial choice of a route. After he's chosen to begin his journey, and he's not sure that he can change to another route during the trip, he might stop over in as many places as he wishes within a time limit, but he cannot go back. Thus, as he proceeds on his journey, he becomes more and more limited by each past choice. If he's chosen a railroad using soft coal, he can expect to be soiled and dusty. <laughs> Had he chosen a road burning anthracite or using electricity, he would have been cleaner. So it is with the man in a new life. He can choose to live a hard life, but he's free to choose whether he will live it cleanly or wallow in the mire. Sure. So this, this is kind of dope, man. This is like you're going to see exactly what you're going to go through. But then you get to decide how you get from all the different points. I don't remember any of that, Thomas. Okay. I don't remember seeing any of this ever. Wasn't it Nick? Oh, that's because I just made it up on the fly. I got that all from ChatGPT, actually. Didn't Nick Cage just come out saying that he remembers his life in the womb or something? You saw that? I mean, if you did, that it this book makes a strong argument. Because if he remembers his life in the womb, that might mean that he almost got born before but then died and then was able to carry some of those memories into that next body that he jumped into. So if he does remember his life in the womb, it might not have been Nicolas Cage in the womb. It might have been like the previous body yeah, 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 that gotcha. he died in and Oof. then brought that memory back. The purpose of life is not happiness, but experiences. And then this part right here, sorrow and pain are the most benevolent teachers while the joys of life are but fleeting. And this seems a stern doctrine and the heart cries out passionately at even the thought that it may be possible to be true. Nevertheless, it is true. And upon examination, it will be found not such a stern doctrine after all. Consider, and then he's talking about <laughs> the reason we have pain is a good thing because if you were to put your hand in a fire on top of a stove and feel no pain, you would lose that limb eventually because all the nerves and everything would burn away. But because we have pain, it's a good thing because it alerts you to take your hand away from the fire. So it's kind of like inverting this thing. Like pain is actually, what is it? Pain is weakness leaving the body. I was like, no pain is, is good for you, right? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, and there's another, th this one is a little oversimplified, but like leprosy is, the disease where you know your your limbs fall off or your body starts decaying well one aspect of leprosy is actually that the nerves are no longer letting you know that you know your body's uncomfortable so what what can happen it's almost like old people in beds that get those bed sores if you don't roll over every once in a while mm -hmm. you're cutting off circulation you're preventing your skin from breathing and like those little moments of discomfort which we all take for granted that's what makes you shift in your chair a little bit right or like move your foot over well, if you don't have that sensation that says, hey, you know, move your leg a little bit, dummy, 
then it just you know starts to decay a little bit so so leprosy is actually more about no longer feeling pain and the result of not feeling that pain is that now you don't know when to like move your body around so then it starts to decay a little bit it's not that you get leprosy and your body just starts you know decaying it's 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 more about that it's like the lack of pain and that kind of shows you why pain is important mm -hmm. uh we have here uh, so instead of losing the hand we escape with the blister which quickly heals and the next thing i have here man is also in school the school of experience he must return many times before he can hope to master all the knowledge in the world of sense no one earth life, however rich in experience, could furnish the knowledge. So nature decrees that he must return to earth after intervals of rest to take up his work where he dropped it. Exactly as a child takes up its work in school each day. So he's talking about the reincarnation, how it's necessary because you're continuing your work over and over and over again. I wonder how deep that school analogy goes. Like, are we in different grades or degrees? You know what I mean? I do. Would am say I so. like a like a fifth degree, and someone else is at a third degree, or how does that work? Again, if there were no return to earth, what is the use of living? Why strive for anything? Why should a life of happiness and an eternal heaven be the reward for a good life? What benefit could come from a good life in heaven, where everybody's already happy? Surely, in a place where everybody's happy and content contented there is no need for sympathy self-sacrifice or wise counsel no one would need them here but on earth there are many who need those very things such as humanitarian and altruistic qualities are the greatest service to struggling humanity therefore the great law for which works for good brings man back to work again in the world for benefit to himself and others with his acquired treasures instead of letting them go to waste in a heaven where no one needs them. <laughs> so he's talking about, again, why we need reincarnation in some sort of way. And I, I, I grew up Pentecostal Christian. A lot of people don't know that, but I wasn't ever taught about reincarnation. I was taught about something else. The preparation. If you brought up reincarnation in Pentecostal church, would that be like blasphemy? Blasphemy, yeah. yeah. No. This dude was on it when he was talking about it. He said even questioning is blasphemy, so. Even talking about this book is blasphemy, according to when I was raised Pentecostal Christian. A lot of people don't know that, but uh, the re uh, preparations for rebirth. Do you have anything on that? Uh, no, I've got uh, some to come after this. All right, go ahead. Um, so after this one, there's uh, the blood of the vehicle of the ego. <laughs> and this is what I was talking about before, about at like the age 14, there's something very specific, and they try to tie it to science here. It says, in infancy and up to the 14th year, the red marrow bones do not make all the blood corpuscles. Most of them are supplied by the thymus gland, which is the largest in the fetus and gradually diminishes as the individual blood making faculty develops in the growing child. This is true that the thymus gland contains, as it were, a supply of blood corpuscles given by the parents. So consequently, the child which draws its blood from that source does not realize its individuality not until all the blood is made by the child does it think of itself as I. And when the thymus gland disappears at the age of 14, um, that being feels reach its full expression and the blood is made and dominated entirely by the ego. This, this is uh, the Rosicrucianism that I was familiar with before coming into this book, that they had all of these rules about ages and that it tied into anatomy and it and it always came across to me like oh you have to understand anatomy and geometry and math and all this stuff to get into rosicrucianism 
and this is the crux of one of those aspects we talked about the spleen and the liver elsewhere in the book they talk about like the exact functions of this but this particular part because it's come up in my research before about the thymus gland and how it does eventually decay and it's almost at an inverse relation to the pineal gland because in all the conspiracy theories we've all read it's almost like commonplace that you're born with a healthy functioning pineal gland and over the time it calcifies and it gets away, brain yeah. sand right mm -hmm. withers away well the exact same thing happens to the thymus gland but the thymus gland is actually um supplying you know th this like aspect to your blood to the rest of your body and this interesting concept that until you're 14 all of that's coming from your parents which has been stored up in that thymus gland and that once it shrivels up that's what determines manhood i guess that's what turns you into your own person with your own thoughts it's actually that shriveling of the thymus gland and there was a there was a person that i knew i forgot or my dad one of my dad's friends who he said that in Mexico there was this procedure where they would cuz after a certain age so 14 whatever the the thymus gland withers away and there's a treatment supposedly that for anyone who has cancer or whatever where they reactivate your thymus gland they reactivate and they they described it as when it's reactivated it nukes your body of like any bad stuff you know by stuff i mean any cancerous cells any disease it nukes it's almost like setting off a nuke within your body by activating that because that it's pumping you fully all these hormones and all these things during like your we're life. gonna get flagged for medical advice now you dick you think so bro <laughs> i can i can clip that 316 i don't think that's medical misinformation it's just something you know i'll write i'll write the timestamp down bro just in case and i'll clip it out but yeah, the, the thymus. You heard it here. The cure for cancer is to have your thymus um, gland reactivated in Mexico. I, don't, I think if we play this, I think we'll be okay. Hold on. Give me one second. <laughs> so if we play this sound. Brought to you by Pfizer. I think we should be okay. There we go. I, we're good now. We're we're, good. I think we're good. Yeah, I think we're good. I mean, worst case. I just, wait, I just heard back from the lodge. We're good. All right, cool. All right, nice. Let me write this timestamp down either way, but... Where are we at here? So 14. And then I had some other stuff here. The The full-blooded person when the blood is too hot is active in the body and mind while the anemic person is sleepy. <laughs> you want to talk about the goeth part and writing in, in blood instead of ink? That's all you. Uh, I didn't write that part down, actually. You didn't? Do you want to talk about it? I mean, just use words that rhyme well, I, with the thing that it's supposed I, to insinuate? I like I like the the blood aspect where he talks about ego being in the blood because this ties into so much of the other research that I'm I'm not going to mention by name but he says it rhymes with old, Google Chrome yeah it rhymes with Google Chrome pizza sauce is what we're calling it but he says that old Norsemen and Scots recognized the ego in the blood no stranger could become associated with them as a relative until he had mixed blood with them and thus became one of them. Goth, who was an initiate, also showed this in his Faust. <laughs> Faust is about to sign the compact with Mephistopheles and asks, why not sign with ordinary ink? Why use blood? Mephisto answers, because blood is a most peculiar essence. This is because he knows that who has the blood has the man, that without the warm blood, ego can find no expression. This one was super deep to me because... 
like what what is it about blood that adds all of this like like blood magic is one of the oldest forms of fucking magic and that's mm-hmm. what gets into vampirism and mm-hmm. um eternal life and even today in like silicon valley when like the rich dudes strap up 18 year olds and get the iv for blood transfusions mm-hmm. it's about that vitality and like this earlier v- forms of blood having vitality and even like we just mentioned about those 14 year olds where they're getting certain components of their blood from their parents that they aren't their own person yet until they provide all of it for themselves. So once that moment hits at puberty, when a person starts providing their own ego and their own blood, I wonder if there's something special about that particular age or maybe before that age that you want to like capture that soul or that essence. Um, again, this I wasn't expecting to read this in the Rosicrucian book. Uh, but it fits into so many other angles here. Shit. And then I get into the yo, yo, young talks about the snail, bro. Forgot to complete. I completely forgot to mention that, but he talks about it being a figure of the unconscious and it's supposed to signify this other reality, the snail and something about the ego, which we can get into later on. But yes. And also Mephistopheles, when he is presented to, to Wagner or Wagner, whatever you want to call him, he is, Present to him as a black dog too by the way so this idea of <laughs> dogs becoming humans or changing in this evolutionary chain chain if you will there there's that connection there with goeth and well, I love, son of sam saw black dog too uh, yeah and the, the the dog was talking to him and told him to do different right do what he did but that's the end of chapter three and the end of where we got to and I don't know. Maybe we we can continue this one and take it a step at a time and take it at a. We'll hop around. We'll come back to it. But man, three chapters. We talked about chemical worlds, kingdoms. We talked about snails, ghost limbs, ghost stories, nails in the coffin, archons, reptilians, archons, animal consciousness, more snail shells, the glove analogy, the condom analogy. We talked about Plato, Pythagoras. Um, we talked about Christ consciousness, psychometry, seed atom, 21 grams experiment, cremation versus non-cremation, gold hoarders, drunkards, purgatory, reliving life backwards, uh, children before 14 years, another snail analogy, uh, all sorts of vibration stories about castle walls and color and synesthesia and uh, three-dimensional sound. I mean, this was so packed with so many different topics that he he does a decent job of relating them all to each other. It, I mean, if you were to give me this punch list and say, Hey, you're going to cover all these topics in three chapters of a book from 1909. Uh, I wouldn't have believed it. So I, I definitely think that this was an interesting read. Um, my balls hurt a little bit, but it was probably like a five out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would rate it four out of 10 because the excruciating pain at the very end of the third chapter, I was just unbearable. But as we have learned, pain is the part that helps you learn. So that yes. might be a good thing. Who knows? So make sure to follow. I posted the hit the like. Don't be a bitch. Right? Hit the like. It helps the channel. It's free 99. It'll pump us in the algorithm. Follow the Kickstarter. Right? We have to follow the Kickstarter. And you don't What's have to buy. At? Did we did we get any? We got one. We got one. Okay. We got all one. Right, so it went from right, fifty to, right. to fifty one. And again, it's not that we want you to buy it. If you get signed up for it, it pumps us up in the algorithm. They're over on Kickstarter, and who knows? We might we might pull an Eric July and go viral and sell a whole bunch of copies of the Chosen One 
and then we can do this for a living. So yeah, just sign up for that. Make sure to get notified on there. Patreon.com slash the one one podcast. All that good stuff. Appreciate the people who signed up for the subscriber members here on YouTube. I'm not going to say it, but the Patreon is better. There's a backlog around right? on, on YouTube. There's only so much that I can, uh, that, that I've uploaded. And yeah, tjojp.com. This was fun, Thomas. And you want to plug in paranoidamerican.com, paranoidamerican on Instagram. If you're watching this right now on YouTube, go and follow me on YouTube too. If you're just on Watch Channel, share some of the love. Let's get me over a thousand subscribers so I can hawk. What do you, what are you selling to people anyways on your advertisements? You ever watched your ads? Yeah, there, I had like a, what a is it? Illuminati dolphin at one point, and I don't know because I have <laughs> no, I pay for you. No, for real, there was like a U, Illuminati, like a secret occultic society of dolphins that somebody sent me. I have YouTube Premium. <laughs> I pay the lizard people to not get targeted ads, so I don't know. What I just want to know if you're getting Toyota commercials or Pfizer commercials or what are you pumping? What's getting latched onto these? I don't know if anyone is watching it without with the ads on. <laughs> Let me know, hit me up because I'd be interesting interested to know what they're putting on my channel. So But this is fun, Thomas. And for the next one, I don't know what we're doing for the next occult book club. We might do this other book, but I want to do something on young, bro. I want to do a book on young because I think it's really interesting. But yeah, let's uh let's hit the outro music for a little bit. Thank you for everyone who, who showed up. Love you guys. See you on the next one. This was fun. Good night.
Thank you.